Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Very special night tonight, as our program opens here in the Land of Enchantment, gazing up across 225,000 miles into space. We are witnessing a gorgeous eclipsed moon. We've just entered, give or take a couple of minutes, the total phase of the lunar eclipse when the moon moves into the shadow of the Earth. So if you were looking from far above the solar system, you would see the sun in the center of these tiny, tiny dots that are reflecting light from the sun, the planets. And as you move out from the sun, there you see the Earth, bluish, bluish green. And right behind it, at 30 diameters, 30 radii away, is this very darkish kind of little reddish thingy called the moon, the only natural satellite we have And that alignment right now, as this program begins all over the world, for North America and South America, is perfect. Totality has begun. My guest actually was coming in from the balcony because they were looking at it live there in Los Angeles. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. So if you go to the other side of midnight.com, remember, that's our homepage. If you're on a phone, you can do it. You can listen simultaneously. Go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner for January 20th. The car and the crescent earth, we're going to talk about all of that. Click on that. That takes you to the guest page. Scroll down in radio with pictures to my items, item number one. This is a space.com link. And right there at the top, you will see, I'm waiting for a response because there's a lot of people apparently logging into space.com. You will see a video at the top of this particular page that they have arranged. And that video is right now of the... um, Total, sol- uh, total, solar, total lunar eclipse as seen from Los Angeles from the famed Griffith Observatory. They apparently are using that large telescope I've looked through a couple, three times in the dome, the green dome um, off to the left. There we are. And you can see it getting darker and redder and darker and redder. So keep that up in a separate window. Go back to the guest page. All right. And scroll down to item number four. This is a a, a painting made several years ago, a couple of decades ago, by a famous space illustrator named David Hardy. This is what you would see if you were on the moon right now. Because remember, because of the geometry, the alignment of Earth, Sun, and Moon, if you're standing on the moon or you're in lunar orbit on on the near side, and you're looking toward the Earth right now, you would see a total solar eclipse. And from the moon, the Earth appears four times bigger in the sky than the moon appears from the Earth. The moon optically extends across about half a degree. The sun is about half a degree optically in the sky. That's why we have total solar eclipses. 
And we're not going to talk about that extraordinary coincidence tonight, but we will at some future time because it will play a role in events to come. Anyway, if you're standing on the moon, though, the moon appears, uh, I'm sorry, the Earth appears in the moon's sky two degrees across, which is four times half a degree. So a total solar eclipse from the moon is a total lunar eclipse if you're standing in Los Angeles on a balcony in uh, California right now or any place in North America and you look toward the moon and it's clear and it's not snowing like it is for Keith. Keith Morgan's in Maryland and they're expecting snow and in Northern California, Cynthia apparently has been rained out. So in San Francisco and the environs, there is no eclipse that's occurring above the clouds. But if you go to the other side of midnight.com and click on that first link for the super blood moon, there there you are. Okay, I actually have to refresh because it says an error occurred. I imagine the error is because an awful lot of people are logging on and uh, it says waiting for a response. Um, I'm surprised that they're... Um, their website, the Griffiths website and space.com are holding up because there must be a ferocious number of people looking and looking and looking. So yeah, it comes up, you click on that little carrot in the middle, there's the moon. And you can make it bigger, you can make it full screen. Oh, look at that. Oh, that is so gorgeous. That that kind of darkest splotch at the like two o'clock position, if the screen is vertical and midnight is straight up or 12 is straight up that darkish area surrounded by the bright that's mari chrysium the sea of crises and the dark larger splotch to the left of it almost in the center of the moon again toward the top is mari serenitatis we're going to talk a bit about mari serenitatis before uh, too long in this show and if you keep going to the left the even larger splotch Oh, now it says an error has occurred because there's a lot of people hitting the site. Must be millions of people who um, either are clouded out or they literally um, don't know there's an eclipse going on outside unless they see it on television. Many, many, many years ago when I took a cruise ship full of interested space type people to watch the last uh, Apollo 17 mission to the moon. I had a whole bunch of people on board, including an old friend of mine. We're going to talk about him a bit tonight, Isaac Asimov. And uh, we were running around the ship. You know, it was basically ours. It was, we had this whole entire quasi-spaceship to ourselves, thousands of people all there to see the launch of the last mission to the moon. Okay, it's back. I'm clicking on the eclipse. Here it is. Okay. Anyway, um, as Isaac was running from, I guess, his cabin up to the bridge to see the launch, which had been delayed and delayed and delayed, he encountered two women somewhere by the rail, and they stopped him because they knew who he was. And they said, Mr. Asimov, Mr. Asimov, are you going to provide any television of this? I mean, for them, this is back in the Dark Ages. This is 1972. They didn't think it would be real to them unless they saw it, not with their own eyes, across a few miles of water in the darkness. They wanted to see it on television. So I imagine there's an awful lot of people tonight who think the only way they can see this eclipse is to tune in SLU or tune in space.com or NASA or any of the other websites. If you go to the uh, other side of midnight.com and you click on tonight's guest page, for January 20th, that will take you down to my images again and radio with pictures. You'll see a number of links. Item number three is a link to another 
live coverage. You have to register with your email and sign in, but that will give you maybe better bandwidth. It's an HD link, 1080, you know, dots per, per inch. So you can see the eclipse on a couple of links we have up in case one of them, you know, poops out on you. So why am I intrigued with all this? Well, if you go back to that first link, if you actually look at the super blood moon coming to us from uh, Griffith, that third big black splotch on the moon to the left of Chrissy. Remember, Chrissy on the right, Serenitatis in the middle, and then the big one on the left is Mari Imbrium. That is where the Chinese mission to the moon, remember Chang 3, Chang is of course the goddess of the moon, lunar goddess. That is the place where the Chang 3 robot lander is still alive and ticking, still working kind of up near the top of the uh, left-hand side of uh, Imbrium, which is that third dark splotch, reddish now, very red because of the refraction of sunlight through the Earth's atmosphere. And that's where the Chinese, I believe, are looking at the eclipse with their cameras. But of course, for some reason, they've seen a lot of eclipses over the last several years, since 2013. They haven't deigned to show us any which may mean that the cameras are no longer working or something like that. But there's something much more interesting going on inside the lander itself. And I think I, as I said last night, I think I figured out why the Chinese have landed their Chang-4 lander on the far side in the southern hemisphere of the moon in a crater, big crater, 112 miles across, almost more like a, a, a walled plain on the moon called Van Karman. Because if you look up the coordinates, Von Karman is 45 degrees below the lunar equator, meaning it's halfway between the equator of the moon and the south pole of the moon. More important, it is located at 177 west, which is three degrees from 180 degrees from the prime meridian facing the Earth, which means right now that lander, that Chang-4 lander, is in a position to measure the torsion field vibration of the ether as it goes from the sun through the earth and through the core of the moon and they can correlate the readings between these two spacecraft one in the front one facing the eclipse in embryum and the other on the dark side and tonight you know the far side is the dark side because of course the near side is uh, when it comes out of eclipse it'll be high noon so this really is the dark side of the moon it really is an amazing phenomenon that they are witnessing, and they are witnessing it not with cameras, not with um, uh, any optical technology, not with anything that you could imagine um, in, in terms of uh, uh, things that scientists might use to measure. They're basically probably using a souped-up version of the Accutron that I've dragged around the world with Robin to measure this physics, this vibration of the ether at all kinds of different sacred sites. And if you, um, if you know anything about uh, the, the torsion field phenomenon that I've been discussing for many, many years, you know that this, this measurement is very important in terms of figuring out what it is that the planets are doing when they align and how their rotation as they align with each other corresponds to hiccups or vibrations or waves in the torsion field. And if I'm right about any of this, it means tonight um, what they're doing 
is they're literally measuring the physics on the dark side of the moon. I mean, it really is the dark side of the moon. In fact, that sounds to me like it could almost be a cue. The lunatic is on the cross Remembering the games And baby chains and blocks Got to keep the lunatic on the park The lunatic is in the hall The lunatics are in my home. The paper holds their folding faces to the floor. And every day the paper boy brings more.
is a technology entrepreneur, investor, innovator, and futurist with a career spanning more than two decades of industry-leading breakthroughs. He has helped to build dozens of venture and nearly 100 patents, collectively generating billions of dollars in market value, including multiple IPOs and acquisitions by Apple, Facebook, Samsung, Disney, and others. Nova is ranked among the top 20 futurists worldwide and is a top LA power player in technology. He has advised governments, presidential campaigns, Fortune 10 global corporations, leading consumer brands, venture funds, incubators, and tech startups. Spivak is also the founder and CEO of Magical, a science and technology venture studio based in Los Angeles, where he works as a venture producer to fund and incubate breakthrough companies. One of the early space tourists and space entrepreneurs, he has had a long interest in helping to facilitate the growth of a spacefaring civilization. Nova flew to the edge of space in 1999 and did zero-gravity training with Peter Diamandis and Richard Garriott and with the Russian Air Force and the Russian Space Agency. He is the co-founder and chairman of the Arch Mission Foundation, which is building a solar system-scale backup of Earth. The Arch Mission successfully launched the first permanent library in space on February 6, 2018, as the secret payload of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy test launch. A second archive will land on the moon in 2019 with Space IL containing the Wikipedia and many other data sets. Nova earned an undergraduate degree in philosophy from Oberlin College, and during college, he also participated in summer research at the MIT Computer Science Department. He received a graduate-level professional degree in space life sciences from the International Space University in 1992. Nova is the eldest grandson of the management guru Peter Drucker and is married to television producer and writer Kimberly Rubin Spivak and has a young daughter. And without further ado... Welcome to the other side of midnight, Nova. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Well, my gosh, you know, this is such an auspicious evening because that eclipse, I mean, I don't know how many eclipses you've seen, but no matter how many I see, I never get tired of them. Yeah, they're they're amazing astronomical phenomena that really kind of have this visceral effect. You feel that you really are seeing something gigantic taking place. So where should we begin? Um, obviously, everybody's going to be concerned and intrigued with the car and the archive and all that. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you, and I'm not quite sure how to approach this, um, how you got into the archiving business. <laughs> you know, that to me, that's so intriguing because most people, I mean, I worked some years ago with trying to preserve something called the Miami Circle. And Miami, if they think of something you know, in terms of, of archive or history, it's like last week. <laughs> so how did you how did you realize that maybe the human species should begin to put markers in time to mark the fact that we were here and the things that we have done? Well, um, you know, my interest started as a as a child. Um, you know, I had an interest in science. Um, I, I was also uh, certainly interested in archaeology and you know, the ruins of ancient civilizations um, and the typical kinds of things that a I don't know, MIT Kendall Square kind of kid would be interested in. Um, and I'd also, uh, you know, read some science fiction. Of course, Star Wars had a huge effect on me and Close Encounters of the Third Kind as a kid. Um, and so I was very oriented towards you know, the question of, you know, are we alone and is there a larger civilization in the universe? Um, and so I started really thinking about that as a kid, and that kind of stayed with me. Uh, when I into college, of course, the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy uh, was a was a big inspiration. And somewhere uh, along the line, I, I I began to develop a big interest in artificial intelligence and. Um, that led to an interest in trying to encode knowledge in a way that uh, computers would be able to understand it. So I started getting involved in something called the semantic web and started building big ontologies and, and knowledge bases. Uh, and as I started doing that, I, I learned a lot about how hard it is actually to capture and represent knowledge. And um, at one point, the idea occurred to me you know, how are we going to preserve all of this digital information and, and, and all the other knowledge that we have, um, you know, for posterity? And as I, as I started looking into that, I learned about um, the ephemerality of our, of our information. Another oh, my book. God. It, no, but it is so incredibly brief. It's like we've got stone cuneiform and, and clay tablets that are, you know, five, 6,000 years old. But I've got media here, discs and, and stuff that I can't play on anything, and they're only like 10, 15 years old. Exactly. Um, another book that was very influential was Deep Time. Um, that was a, a Gregory Benford, very interesting book about um, the, uh, the work that was done to try to figure out how to mark the nuclear waste uh, sites that were being built in a way that wouldn't attract attention, would actually scare people away. But the challenge is, you know, how do you do that? for people in the distant future, you know, anything you do might actually attract them to it. You want to actually keep them away from it. And that was a very interesting, uh, interesting book. Um, and so, uh, as I kind of 
dug into this topic, um, you know, the more I learned about it, the more I realized that our civilization is probably the most ephemeral civilization on earth that's ever happened. Um, and that's because you know, ancient civilizations, they had oral traditions. We, we really don't have that anymore. Um, and then they also had forms of storage such as, and even in some cases, you know, parchment or wood and other ways that information was preserved, uh, you know, those at least have a, a fairly long lifetime uh, compared to digital storage today. Digital storage you know, has a shelf life of somewhere between tens of years and hundreds of years. Um, but, you know, even if the media itself lasts, the devices needed to make sense of it and the knowledge about the standards doesn't last. And of course, if anything bad were when you happen, say standards, you mean the encoding. If you if yeah, you write encoding. something and no one can read it, it's pointless anyway. Yeah, like all the old discs and things I have from you know early computer days, you know pre Mac, pre PC, all that stuff is useless. Um, you know, if you have punch card data, you probably aren't going to find anything that can read it today. Um, so, you know, that's in the best scenario. In the worst scenario, if something terrible happens, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a war, a global war, or, you know, uh, an EMP, whether it's naturally caused or caused by humans, uh, you know, a, a uh, cataclysm, whether it's a, you know, a comet or a meteor strike or a solar flare, uh, an x-ray burst, there's so many ways to to potentially wipe out civilization. And of course, if you look at the fossil record, um, you see um, that it happens fairly regularly on, on geological scales. Um, and we've Roughly seen them, every uh, quarter of a billion years. Mm-hmm. And we've had a, a number of mass extinction events as well. Um, we're possibly in one now, actually. Mm. And uh, it's also interesting if you look at civilizations and, and you know, just how many civilizations there have been and how many of them we still know anything about and how long they last. And I think uh, there was a study done, I believe it was actually NASA study, but they found that the average age of a civilization is a couple hundred years, actually. And there have been thousands of them on Earth. Um, but when you think about it, how many of these civilizations do we really have much knowledge about today? Not that many. Um, so... You know, all these factors, if you take them all together and then look at what's going on, um, you know, are a concern. Another interesting point is that there's some geological studies of the concentration of plankton um, and and looking at plankton in sediments um, in layers of the mantle. And what they found was that when the density of the population of plankton um, reaches sort of a critical threshold, um, the probability that some other microorganism will cause a, a die-off uh, seems to increase. And so whenever they, they see this kind of population density increasing to a certain point, there's a kind of mass die-off. And of course, you see this in other populations too. Certainly he, the human population of the earth uh, and the overall environmental situation, as we know, that we're all facing, um, has signs that maybe we're approaching, you know, one of these thresholds. So with all that said, um, you know, I 
became concerned that you know, all that we take for granted could be lost in the blink of an eye. And so I started thinking about, well, how could we preserve it? You know, the pyramids are a good way of preserving data, but they're not particularly high density. You can't store that much information on the wall of a pyramid, mm. but they last a long time, maybe not long enough. I mean, they, the pyramids too will also ultimately be worn down and become sand. Um, but they're a good example. Um, you look at things like the Nazca lines or, you know, the Mayan ruins and the uh, Machu Picchu and other ancient sites. Um, you look at information found in caves. That's pretty interesting. Caves have been a, a great way of preserving information, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, the caves in, in Mustang, in Nepal. Um, well, the Lesu Cave there in France, we know that yeah. the paintings are something between 35 and 40,000 years old. Yeah, And they're only preserved because they're deep underground and they're preserved from sunlight and tourists up until recently. And they've been alone for millennia upon millennia, but it, they were found by accident. No one you know, put a big marker saying this way to the archive. Well, actually, yeah, I love those caves. And actually, at the time that the caves were being used, the, oh, opening, the opening to the cave was 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 in a different was exposed and uh later um i guess rock falls and other things kind of covered it up and so it was hidden they hadn't intentionally marked it for the future but it's interesting when you look at those hand prints where they they basically it looks like they blew um some kind of pigment around their hands and they made these sort of negative imprints of their hands on the walls you know they're actually red they're they're red yeah, oak red yeah well they're beautiful and you know those you know that set of handprints you know you feel like these people were signing their names or kind of you can touch them yeah yeah they're reaching out to us so anyway uh there is this theme uh, of communicating across deep time that i got interested in and with all of that i, I thought well what would be the, the best way to do this first of all i, I got interested okay in well that before we get into that i've actually just blown past my first soft break thank goodness it's not at the top of the hour so I'll tell you what, hold it there. My guest of the morning is Novak Spivak, Novak, Nova Spivak. I'll get this right at some point. Um, and we're talking about preserving things across an amazing amount of time. How do you, how do you wind up preserving a culture which is um, pretty impermeable to begin with? And how do you, how do you structure archives or media or something where you actually could uh, could uh, come back in a thousand years or 10,000 years and you'd be able to actually reconstruct the civilization that left you a message. We'll get deeper into this deep time when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't go away. Find us at midnight.com. 
Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight during this total lunar eclipse occurring right now. The eclipse will last about an hour from its beginning, which was just a little bit after 10 o'clock land of enchantment, because the moon moves through the Earth's shadow at the rate of about one diameter per hour, about 2,000 miles an hour. The moon is 2,160 miles across. So totality only lasts about an hour. And then on the other side of the moon, on the left-hand side, you'll begin to see a brightened area and the blood part, the reddened atmospheric uh, refraction from the Earth's atmosphere across 225,000 miles will begin to fade. And the eclipse in another hour will be over, except for the penumbral part, which you really can't see. Anyway, um, my guest this morning is Nova Spivak, and we're talking about preserving things down through time. How do, you, how do you preserve a civilization for hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years in a form that future, future, future generations, or let's you know, be a little expansive, ET explorers, someone from outside, some other star system comes to Earth. I can think of a whole bunch of sci-fi stories that have that as the cornerstone of the, of the plot. How do you make it so that you can translate your languages, your idioms, your subjects, your, your illustrations, your painting, your music. How do you translate all that into an archive, into a record that lasts for a very long time? Nova, back to you. Sure. So um, picking up where we left off, um, the first thing um, I thought about was, well, the Wikipedia would be a, an interesting a data set that, that we might want to try to preserve. And so I had this idea, um, let's put the Wikipedia on the moon. That seems like a good place uh, because it's relatively undisturbed compared to Earth. Of course, even the moon you know, gets pulverized by, by micrometeorites, micrometeorites over time. But it's an interesting potential cold storage location uh, for things that we want to protect. And it's also a place where hopefully if an advanced civilization emerged on earth, uh, you know, that's where they would also be looking at some point and, and it would be possible to find this again. And of course I was aware of um, all the alternative theories about 
uh, forbidden archaeology and ancient astronauts and, you know, all of the topics uh, that Richard and others talk about uh, regarding you know, anomalies that, that may exist um, around the solar system. And there's certainly lots of anecdotal evidence that that might have happened. And so, of course, I was interested as well and thought, well, you know, Maybe there is something there for us to find. I mean, it's logical that if there ever was an advanced civilization before us um, that was capable of putting anything in space, they, they, they might have left their footprints or fingerprints or maybe even archives on the moon. It's a logical thing to do. When you think about how to preserve Earth civilization, um, one of the first things that you realize is you need an off-site backup. It's just it's a standard backup strategy. You need, you need redundancy and you need an off-site or multiple off-site backups. Key, one problem so, I see is the moon, for instance, is uh, 2,000 miles, give or take, across. It has a surface area equal to North and South America combined. So how do you direct future you know, generations or explorers or visitors, even outsiders, to where you put the archive unless sure. you plan to put a whole bunch of archives all over the moon, which doesn't seem well, practical. That, yeah, that is the idea. Um, actually, the, the concept is to put archives in interesting places, to try to put them in places that would get attention because they have some unique geology or interesting features. Um, and so you know, one strategy is to, is to think about, well, what are the places that you know, would be most likely to be surveyed or explored, uh, whether they have a magnetic anomaly or unusual um, terrain uh, or, uh, you know, other artifacts or anomalies that, you know, might attract attention. Um, we might even create them. We might make beacons or we might mm. build structures that could attract. I think that was the logic of Arthur and Stanley when they put Tycho Magnetic Anomaly 1, TMA1, in Tycho because it's the youngest, yeah. splashiest crater in the last 100 million years. And it's, I think the logic was future explorers will go there and dig something up if they certainly find other evidence like the anomaly itself, the magnetic anomaly, that there's something weird about Tycho beyond Tycho. Right. And why did we land where we landed in the various you know, Apollo landings and so forth? Why did we choose those places? I mean, there's also the fact that… Because it was very, 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 very safe. Yeah, very flat. <laughs> and, and that's another uh, interesting… Uh, thought is, you know, maybe you don't put these archives in the most difficult, unusual features, but in the, the flat and boring features where somebody else might actually land and they might take a close look before they do. Um, so I thought about that. Uh, and we also thought about the notion that rather than trying to, you know, guess right, why don't we just put a lot of archives all over the place? Massive redundancy. The holographic we, model then. Yes. So what if we put them uh, all over Earth in various locations that are uh, very durable, uh, as well as all over the solar system. And the idea is if we, if we get enough of them out there into enough locations, first of all, um, the system would be resilient to the loss of some of those locations. Secondly, the chances of someone, whether they're visiting our solar system or they emerge here, you know, the chances would be greater that someone eventually would run into one of them. And furthermore, important point, if you have lots of locations, if somebody were to find one, they wouldn't be able to hoard it because there's still a lot oh. of other locations where it is. 
important point. So um, that is sort of the, the strategy that, that we came up with. But we, we ran into a problem, and the problem was we couldn't find any medium um, that was suitable for storing big data uh, for long periods of time. Um, the digital storage media we have on Earth um, you know, are carbon-based, and, and of course, many are magnetic. You also have optical ones, but the, you know, the hydrocarbons in, in them will not last forever. They're eventually going to degrade on Earth. The, the oxygen will also oxidize the other materials in them. Um, and then you also have things like heat or, you know, other you know, water and other environmental factors, whether it's, you know, acidity and so forth, will gradually degrade them. And so, you know, as we looked at different media, we just couldn't find anything that was capable of storing the amount of data we wanted. How did that make you feel? Because, you know, we, we have this lordy idea that we're the best and the brightest and the most amazing that Earth's ever produced it's a little humbling when you look at ancient cuneiform tablets and realize that they're thousands of times more persistent than anything that our technology could conveniently produce to record stuff. Yeah. I mean, that, that was, that was sort of what we realized. And, um, you know, as we, as we explored this further, um, we found, uh, you know, there are some um, media that were developed. One is, is uh, a technology called the M disc, um, which was invented in Utah. Um, you know, the Mormons, by the way. I was going to say by the Mormons. Well, I mean, not particularly, I wouldn't say by the Mormons, but, you know, it was, they, it was invented by, by scientists, um, you know, at, at a university in Utah. Um, and uh, the M-Disc is interesting because it has a stone-like material within it in which the, the uh, information is sort of cut out or, kind of created as kind of holes in it. And so in theory, um, M-discs would last longer. They have a lifetime, projected lifetime of around a thousand years, hmm. um, which is pretty good. Um, however, even M-discs on the moon would not be that durable. I actually reached out to the inventors of the M-discs and we had a long discussion about that. Um, and they felt that, you know, even the M-discs have, um, you know, hydrocarbon based, you know, they have plastic effectively um, and that would degrade and you know ultimately um, you know the, the discs themselves wouldn't wouldn't work um, and eventually might not be that durable even on the moon yeah any any hard or any organics exposed to hard radiation solar or cosmic would ultimately go away yeah so you know they're interesting but yeah you know, the other issue is you have heat you have cold you have temperature changes on the moon which you know, if you think about that over a long period of time, the repeated heating and cooling creates micro fractures. 500 degrees Fahrenheit day to night. Yeah. So it can create all kinds of micro fractures. And, you know, it's a pretty difficult environment um, to, to preserve things in. And so, you know, MDS were interesting, but we didn't think they were suitable. Um, you know, we also looked at things like the Memory of Mankind project. They're making effectively ceramic, little ceramic tablets. Um, and that's great, but they just, they just can't store enough information. Um, we also looked at sapphire, which had been explored. Um, and, you know, sapphire disks are nice, but again, they also can't store enough information. Um, and so one thing led to another, and eventually I found 
uh, an emerging technology out of the University of Southampton in the UK uh, called 5D Superman Memory. And the idea here was to use a femtosecond laser to uh, create disruptions in the structure of quartz silica glass. Um, and so actually what they were doing is shooting a bunch of little pulses very rapidly into very focused points, causing them to turn into plasmas, to heat them into plasmas in those little locations. And then they can precisely control the cooling and other properties of that such that when the plasma cooled, it formed with uh, a nano grating. And the nano gratings are some of the smallest structures uh, ever created uh, with light. And uh, basically a nano grating is a, is a sort of like a diffraction pattern, but they can precisely orient these in five different degrees of freedom or dimensions. And, and those are three dimensions of space and then one dimension of polarization and another dimension, um, which a little harder to characterize, um, which uh, is the size of the nanograding. So these five different dimensions enable them to store up to eight bits with a single nanograding. Um, and interestingly, they can, they can create these in layers inside a disk of quartz. So not on the surface, but inside the quartz. Oh, so the quartz protects it like a, like, like a shell. Yeah. And, but then you know, if you found one of these, if there's nothing on the surface, how would you even know it's something that had a recording in it? Well, you can see it. It looks like a DVD. It looks like a tiny little DVD. You can see the pictures. Um, I think you have some pictures up um, to now. Yeah, let's, let's go to Radio with Pictures. So people go to theothersideofmidnight.com, click on the homepage there, click on tonight's banner with Nova Spivak for January 20th, scroll down on his guest page where it says Nova Spivak's items, and you want to go down to number eight. Number eight. And we'll talk about this, of course. Um, but you see there's a little disc of quartz. And in that um, is a um, refractive little rainbow-like oh, yeah. DVD. That's inside the quartz. It's not on the surface. There's no hole or anything. That, there's, it's just the way it's written. Um, and you can see a bunch of them. So these are a set sort of like DVDs. I mean, the, the encoding is different. And you can see we I put the encoding key. I like to spread that. Um, and this shows how you can actually um, read these little nano gratings. You need a special type of uh, polarization microscope. Um, and if you have that, you're able to look at these sort of different colors uh, of the nano gratings and, and interpret them as letters and punctuation. And so um, what, they, what they realized is that um, there is a theoretical capacity in a 12 centimeter disc actually um, to store about 360 terabytes of data. Oh my God. Yeah. In terms of things we've been familiar with, how many libraries of Congress, for instance, is that? Oof. Um, <laughs> I always, I should remember this. Um, <laughs> how large is the Library of Congress in terabytes? He said accessing a global archive called yeah, it's Google. terabytes. Um, uh, no, that's every tweet. Sorry. Library of Congress is 15 terabytes. So, um, well, a lot. Um, so that would be how many Library of Congresses? That would be a 24. Mm, uh, so, give or take, yeah. Something like that. Wow. 
Um, and so, so that's every major library currently on Earth on one disk. Yeah, and you know, of course, we need to be thinking about really big data like genome data, video data, um, you know, all kinds of sensor data. Uh, you know, we're, these data sets are are huge compared to the kinds of data that are stored in most libraries today. Um, if you just if you take the data from you know astronomical observatories, um, you know, or uh, film libraries, I mean, you you need vast numbers of terabytes. I mean, you really need petabytes easily. And a petabyte so, is what a thousand terabytes, right? And so we need forms of storage that, you know, go beyond terabytes, actually. And what's nice about these quartz disks is, you know, if you can make 360 terabytes in a 12-centimeter disk, then you, make a, you could make a bigger disk or you could just make more of them. Mm. Um, but, you know, you're easily in the petabytes range. Uh, and the other nice thing about quartz is that it's very stable and it can withstand, you know, tremendous heat. Uh, and so even at you know, very high heat, the projected lifetime of a quartz disk is about 13 billion years. My God. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a very promise, promising. Um, but I see a problem. Sorry. How do you get the data back out? Yeah. Well, currently, um, I mean, you're, you're thousands of years in the future. Someone's stumbling across the moon in a spacesuit, and they find a, a cache of this. There's some, you know, case or something that's been set up with a cairn or whatever, and they see these inside. How do they read them? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, turns out, actually, in these quartz disks, you can store uh, analog holograms or digital data, um, but they don't have the same data capacity of, for analog holograms. You know, digital data, you know, that's where you get to 360 terabytes. Holograms or images, effectively, you know, in analog format, will, you, know, you certainly cannot store as many in these quartz disks, not even close. Can you, build, you can you build what I would call a layered message? In other words, start with something stupid, almost like hieroglyphics, and lead the civilization deeper and deeper into the nested, much higher density information stream. Exactly. And so wow. um, that's what we call the primer uh, layer. And so um, in, in, the, in the first quartz disks, uh, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, there is a sort of simple one on the inner rim, um, which teaches the code. Um, but you still have to be able to see it. Uh, but there's a key. Uh, in, in later forms of storage, which we'll get to beyond quartz, um, we've gotten much more sophisticated in how we do that. Well, let's so, stay with the quartz because I want to get to the car and the, this yeah, incredible yeah, yeah. library and all that. And to me, the quartz is almost magical. It's almost – there's some very unusual properties of quartz beyond the using lasers to basically create you know, diffraction rings. Yeah. I mean quartz has is, uh, is, got a lot of wonderful technologies. I had a crystal radio when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, you know, I was a, I was really into shortwave radio as a kid back when people had radios. Um, so of course, you know, crystals have very important properties, um, and they're also beautiful. And one of the things you have to think about is whatever whatever you make, you have to also make sure that whoever finds it understands it's special. It carries information or knowledge. It's, you know, it's not a tasty snack. 
you know? You know, this, uh, as parenthetically, I've talked to a lot of archaeologists over the years about Giza and the pyramids and, you know, ancient archives and storage and all that. And I've said to a couple of them, I think Mark Lehner once, I said, what would you do if you found something that looked just like a piece of rock, but in fact, uh, analogous to what you've just been describing, it's an incredibly high-tech storage medium. How would you ever know? Yeah, how do we indicate that this is not just a, a rock? Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and he said we wouldn't. We just completely – there's no way we would ever know. Well, I mean it depends how the thing was designed. I mean hopefully it's not so high-tech that it just looks like a regular rock. Mm. Hopefully, hopefully it's – you know, the highest technology is reality itself, but you know, we don't necessarily want to make it <laughs> look like reality. You know, to the point where it's camouflaged, you know, it looks like a palm tree, but it's actually a supercomputer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we want this thing to be very cute. identifiable as some, some form of storage media. Well, this, uh, this conversation was many, many, many years ago, so we were totally primitive in how we approached this. But he basically said their technology, their technique for approaching artifacts is to look for things that look like things we are familiar with, something so incredibly alien, so incredibly dense, so incredibly part of the landscape would completely have missed those those techniques you know decades ago well that's interesting i guess the question is whether the message was left intentionally for for lower technology people and and my approach has been to try to design uh, an archive that is capable of transmitting its knowledge to different levels of technological recipients uh, or recipients with different levels of technology so in one scenario um, you know, the archive might be found by a, a pre-industrial age civilization on Earth that emerges, let's say, in you know, 10 million years. Mm. Um, and you know, how would they know what, that it's an archive and how would they get any, any value out of it? Um, you know, in, in my thinking, you, know, you could provide a little bit of value. I mean, mainly you just don't want them to destroy it or lose it until they advance a little bit more. So you'd want to make it look pretty special, magical, you know, put a hologram on it or something interesting that you they, they haven't seen before. So the chieftain would give it to his first wife as a, um, a charm bracelet or something to wear around her neck. Yeah, or they might think it's something from the gods and, you know, and, and worship it. Um, but in any case, they would take care of it. It would be a magical, special object, you know, something that has unusual effects of light or you can see things when you look at it closely. They, they might not have microscopes yet, but they, they might know, wow, you know, this is a magical object. This reminds me of all the mythologies around the crystal skulls. Mm-hmm. Sure. And also, I mean, I mean, what if you made it in the shape of a skull? Well, sure. Of course, that would be a very logical thing to do. Or you could, you know, you, you could make it into a beautiful piece of jewelry. That's another way to do it. There's, you know, you, there's lots of things you could create. You could, you could make it look like some kind of a, a deity or a god. Uh, there's all kinds of symbols communicate specialness. So the main objective there is, you know, preserve this thing, hand it down, don't destroy it. When a, when a civilization reaches, you know, the, the stage where they start to have, uh, you know, optical microscopes, even simple optical microscopes, um, then you'd, you'd want this artifact to reveal more knowledge, even at low magnifications. So... The first layer, as well as having things that are visible to the naked eye, right, which we've talked about, you know, hol- sort of holograms or refractive patterns or even etchings, um, 
the next layer of, of knowledge, whether it's a layer or it's a different part of the disk and how you do it, um, that you know, reveals there's stuff there. You can kind of see it glittering, but you need a microscope to really get in there. And so we're talking it. 17th, 18th century technology. Yeah, 17th, 18th century. Yeah. So there, you know, you want to make something where, you know, if you had a, a hundred power, a hundred power magnification or maybe a few hundred power magnification microscope, you'd be able to see drawing pictures, maybe even pages of text in analog format, not digital, but analog. And, and there, this is very important. You know, you want to, in your staircase of knowledge, you want know, to, you want to start with pictures and symbols that you can see without any kind of decoding. All you need is a magnifying glass or a microscope or your naked eye even. And so that first layer would provide you with some number of, of images or pages or both um, that teach you a little bit more about what this thing is. How would you handle the translation? Because presumably language would have drifted immensely and there'd be no recognition of English or Esperanto or sure. Russian or whatever. And so right. if, you, if you start well, with you pictures. Start with, you start with pictures, diagrams, pictures. Okay. Um, you know, the way I look at it is you have to have a sensory reference. Now, you know, it's important to also say we have to make some assumptions about the, the, the recipients we're designing for. We can't make something that's going to work for all possible recipients that might ever appear. I mean, for example, if they're a microscopic form of intelligent life, there's a lot of room between us and the Planck scale. <laughs> so there might be some really advanced, really tiny civilizations. Well, you know, this little disc to them, you know, it might look like a mountainous terrain. They won't actually even realize that they're walking around on letters, right? Mm. Um, so you, you, you also might imagine that there's some species that either evolved on Earth or somewhere else that's really large. Really large. But they don't have eyes. Um, you know, there's lots of issues where, uh, you know, we have to constrain who we're designing for. Can't make something that's going to work for, you know, a <laughs> that lives underwater, you know, has no visible sensory organs of any kind. You know, it's just, we don't know enough about them to communicate with them, but um, we can design for uh, beings that are roughly our size, you know, emerged in an environment that has gravity probably roughly like ours, you know, with an atmosphere sort of similar to ours. Maybe it was here, maybe it was somewhere else, or at least they're capable, you know, of seeing, in the, the part of the spectrum that we see in. And I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak, and we're talking about what kind of, when you think about it just quickly, it's trivial. You know, leave a message for somebody in the future. It's not trivial at all, as you have heard. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're talking deep time messaging from thousands of years, and maybe millions of light years away. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. 
Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. And welcome back on this Sunday night, January 20th, 19, no, not 19, 2019. I have 19 on the brain. There's an eclipse going on outside, uh, maybe just ending. If you look up, you'll see the beginnings of the brightness on the other limb, the moon exiting from the shadow of the earth in the only lunar eclipse of 2019. I hope you got it. I hope you saw it. If not, there are recordings. Actually, apropos of what we're talking about, there are recordings. I mean, the more you look at this, Nova, the more extraordinarily complex and fiendishly difficult it becomes. Uh, it, it really is a, um, a rabbit hole that contains lots of other rabbit holes. And you know, once you start going down it, uh, it's a, the problem just branches. Um, there's a lot of things to solve. That's also what makes it so interesting. Um, and, you know, I think we've actually found a fairly elegant solution to all of this, which we'll, we'll kind of get to. But, yeah, uh, you know, the, the challenge is how do you, you know, how do you communicate anything of value um, to a recipient, you know, millions of years in the future, perhaps? And, you know, what do we know about them? What can we assume? Well, in our case, we have to make some assumptions that if they, ev- if they evolve here on Earth after us, because of Earth's gravity and atmosphere, they'll probably have some similarities, at least in scale, if they become intelligent enough to, 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 to need or use this knowledge. Um, they'll probably be capable of language. Um, they'll probably have eyes. Uh, and, you know, we have to make these assumptions. Um, so, you know, it's possible that we're just completely wrong. And So the approach you started out with is how do we make a passive recording that will last for a very long time, be pretty robust, something that's beautiful, so when someone finds it, they keep it, they don't destroy it, that kind of thing with all the assumptions of human, you know, emotions built into the idea of beauty. Have you ever thought of the point where a technology could be created that would have a long-lasting, active powered medium could actually talk to or resonate with or connect to the mind of whoever found it. Have you yeah. thought that far ahead? Yeah. Um, you know, Nikola Tesla um, claimed that he had picked up uh, broadcasts. Um, I think Marconi may have also mm-hmm. heard some sound. Mm-hmm. Both of them. Uh, and of course, you know, there's the, the possibility of the dark night satellite. 
Um, and, you know, there are other... Are losers. you familiar with the event in 1924? Uh, no. The U.S. Navy apparently picked up radio that actually was able to be reconstructed in a primitive fax machine made by an inventor named Jenkins, the Jenkins radio camera. I've got one of the photographs from the Naval Archive showing something looking like a humanoid face that they said in 1924, which was the night of the opposition of Mars, came from the planet Mars. That's pretty cool. Well, I mean, you know, it's possible. You know, I, I view all of this as, as science, and let's, you know, let's study it and, and find out. Maybe it is true. Maybe, maybe there is something active trying to reach us. I mean, look at this phenomena of these fast radio bursts. We don't know what they are. It's possible. Are you so, familiar with what ESSA discovered as they approached uh, 67P, the comet? No. no. There is a recording. Uh, I'll try to find it in the next. There's a recording of actual radio transmissions from 67P that sounds incredibly artificial and sounds modulated, like when the Rosetta spacecraft got within a certain distance, it triggered a proximity beacon that turned on this transmission. And we've never heard anything of it since. It was broadcast once. There's some websites that actually have, you know, recorded this and play it. There's tons of speculation, but there's no further word from ESA as to whether they ever heard it again. And was there another approach that would have gotten into the proximity that would trigger something like that? Well, they only approached once. Yeah. yeah. They need to approach it again. Well, they, well, they actually went very close, but again, a kind of a, Iron Curtain of Information descended over this aspect, and we've heard nothing. I've made a few inquiries. There's no, there's no response. Nobody admits to recording or analyzing. or, I mean, they basically arm-waved and said, oh, it's plasma oscillations. Hmm. The problem is it sounds incredibly mechanical and artificial with a tempo and a change of tempo. And um, in, in the next break, I'll try to find it, and we'll, we'll play it. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, I thought about, at one point I thought about, well, why don't we make an artificial satellite um, that somehow is capable of either staying powered or powering up, into, you know, every N number of years or centuries or millennia. Um, at one point I thought, well, let's make a satellite that actually is always powered and has a dead man switch on it. Basically, um, every year or every month or whatever frequency we want, it, it, it sends a message, um, are you still there? And we, if, if it doesn't get a response um, within a certain period of time, then it goes into active mode where it decides, well, something must, be, something must have gone wrong. And, and so I'm gonna try to establish communications more actively. Um, and we thought about, well, you know, what if there was a nuclear war? What if civilization, human civilization was knocked back to the radio age, you know, if they're lucky? Um, well, you know, we'd only be communicating via kind of old-fashioned radio. Um, could this satellite figure that out and start teaching them stuff um, through sound um, to get them back to the point where it could start giving them, you know, higher bandwidth information and digital information and whatnot? Um, I still think it's a pretty interesting idea. The, the, the challenge is how do you power the thing um, for a really long time? Uh, you could put solar panels on it, 
Um, but you know, there's even solar panels, you know, aren't going to last forever. So it's still an open question that I, I still think about how, how could we make a satellite, um, that could, you know, power, stay powered or power up intermittently, you know, maybe mil for millions of years or longer, billions of years. That, that would be great. Um, you know, again, the speculations that we've all heard that maybe there are things like this, you know, are, are, are fairly logical. I mean, if you're trying to solve this problem, these are the things you think about trying to do. And, and so, you know, rather than think of it as science fiction, I think of these as well, techno technological challenges. Maybe we can actually do it. Anyway, uh, we also looked at think, thoughts like, let's put a beacon on the moon or something visible that you could see, you know, alter the color in an area, you know, um, you know, build something that people would be able to see, put something reflective. We've also thought about reflective constellations of, of, of satellites that are passive. Um, but you know, if you bounce something off of them, um, you know, you'll get back a, a signal that's interesting. If you were to cover a certain area on the moon with something bright and reflective like mylar or whatever, mm -hmm. did you look into the erosion rate of micrometeorites to where it would either be yeah. covered or you need a lot? I mean, micro, apparently, you know, over 50 million or 100 million years, the surface of the moon gets, you know, pulverized to dust. Um, so pretty much anything that's there, you know, will probably get pulverized unless you put it underground. Uh, so it may or may not be possible. Now, of course, if you're if you're doing something like, imagine we just let's just uh, you know hypothesize. I mean, maybe we explode, you know, a a huge amount of chaff or red colored dust or something mm -hmm. over a vast area. Um, even if it got pulverized, that dust would still be there. You know, it would be moved around, but it still maintain that distinct color. Um, so you could do something like create a dot on the moon somewhere hmm. um, that, you know, a shape. Um, and well, did you look at something more realistic, like tens of thousands of years as opposed to 50 million? Well, sure. I mean, tens of thousands of years, we thought about it. I mean, the, one of the issues is that the albedo, you know, it, it's quite bright, right? And so to make anything that anyone would be able to see, it, it would have to be extremely reflective. Well, wait, wait, wait. The average unit of reflectivity is 5%. It's very, it's like coal. Yeah, but if you're looking at it, you know, from a distance through a telescope, you know, unless it was quite a large object, you know, the large surface area, be able to see it. I just wondered if you looked at how long the lens would last, and you know, big structures we put on the moon now, how many? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think that um, one expert I was speaking to actually yesterday thinks that the last, you know, maybe um, you know, up to 50 million years. Maybe less. As recognizable technological artifacts. As, well, uh, as not dust. Mm -hmm. um, and that's only one hundred millionth of the life of the solar system. Yeah. And that's why we have to have many locations. And ultimately, we need locations in space, um, which is part of our strategy. Mm -hmm. By the so, way, I've, I found it. You want to hear the singing yeah. comet? Hear it. Take a listen.
Wow, that's pretty cool. Isn't that yeah. amazing? Very interesting. Um, now, I maybe you can reach out because, you know, I have a certain reputation. So when I try to ask questions, <laughs> people go, ah, it's Homeland, he's coming. <clears throat> but maybe you could stealthily find out from Essa what the hell they really think this is. Because to me, what struck me, this, by the way, has been sped up. It's a very low frequency sped up to human hearing, you know, mm. frequency range. It, it's the mechanical, staccato, repetitive, accurate, metrotome nature that tells me it's not plasma waves. Yeah, I don't know. That's pretty interesting. You know, it seems like, you know, listening to it, there's a lot of things that you could analyze and, and you know, see whether there's some pattern that makes sense or draws a picture or something. Well, you're maybe. the guy. <laughs> I'll ask around in my travel. Maybe. Maybe we'll find something. Yeah. So, uh, anyway... We've looked at a lot of these different um, questions and challenges, and you know, in our strategy, the plan is first um, we'll we'll do some big um, public archives in places like the moon or in in uh, other interesting locations around the solar system. Partly because that also becomes part of our lore, our our oral tradition. You know, it gets into our various encyclopedias and histories and uh, and hopefully that's another way that people potentially might find that these things are there. Um, and then we'll... You mean you that, create a kind of a cultural mythos around them so it's passed down from generation to generation to generation that there's something really cool out there. Yeah, the man in the moon. Um, ah. So, yeah. And wait, are now. you saying what I think you're saying? Yeah. So, um, no, hit it on the head, please, for, for, for dumb people like well, me. Well, I mean, you know, the, the idea of the man in the moon, you know, it, 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 maybe there's more to it. You know, how did that actually originate? And, you know, maybe, maybe the origins of that thought, that idea, you know, are a little different than, you know, of course, there is something that looks sort of like a person, you know, but maybe there's more to it. How, oh, what an interesting, I never thought of that. Which opens up the doorway. We've got plenty of time. I take it you're not averse to the idea that we are not the first. Yeah, I mean, we certainly aren't the first civilization on Earth. You know, why should we be the first civilization? Well, the first high-tech civilization we think well, of ourselves now, but you think maybe not? I mean, you know, if you just look at plate tectonics on Earth, on geological timescales, you know, there's a complete recycling of what's on the surface and what's deep under the surface. I mean, everything just basically is turned over. Mm -hmm. So there very well could have been things on the surface millions or billions of years ago that are deep underground, so deep underground, we can't even drill that deep, um, you know, or have been completely encased in lava. What was that discover series or was it history? Some, when I, when I started working on Sidonia, the idea of ancient archives was very, very outrageous. Then television caught up, and there were a couple of series. Um, I, forget. Well, ancient, I mean, of course, there's you know, Eric Von Daniken and the Ancient Aliens and that entire Forbidden Archaeology, Graham Hancock, hmm. um, and, and others. Um, there's a lot of interesting and strange archaeological anomalies. But those all dealt with ancient cultures. This, this TV series, that either was BBC or Discover, whatever, it talked about how long the stuff we currently see around us, like the Eiffel Tower, the, oh, that one, the yeah. World that Trade Center, how long would it last? And that's the number that I did not have when I worked on Sidonia. 
And it turns out that in 10,000 years, no one will ever know 20th century technology was here unless they yeah, do I mean, soil samples. Is not durable. Nope, nope, nope. The steel oxidizes, and, you know. Yeah. So even in the last quarter million years, how many high-tech cultures could have been risen and fallen? And we have no way of knowing because only the stone survives. Yeah, and, you know, Planet of the Apes. Yes, yes. The wonderful – With that last scene, that wonderful last scene. Yeah, that last scene, right? And and tell everybody what it is. Yeah, you know, the Statue of Liberty. Yep. On the beach. Buried up to his neck or something. Buried up to the – Sort of the hand, right? yeah. the head, yeah, the torch. Yeah, I mean, the torch. Really, really interesting. Um, and of course, you know, there was also the Martian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray Bradbury, we are the Martians. Um, and then, you know, you look at, you know, epics like Dune, um, which you know obviously have you know the implication. Um, so, I mean, I think it's it's not unscientific to ask the question. Um, and to look for evidence because it's, you know, if we're here, then, you know, the probability that anybody can be here is much higher, right? I mean, the fact that we exist. See, I've never understood the that. And Abby Loeb, who's the, you know, head astronomer yeah. there at Harvard, has been writing a whole bunch about a move. We're going to talk about that in an hour or so. I'm going to try to get him on the show. Right. And he's making almost a pilgrimage to everybody who will listen this is not unscientific. We should think seriously that this little object came from some other intelligence as, a, as an archive, as a messenger, as an open hailing frequencies thingy from another culture. And I'm fascinated how he's being greeted by the mainstream press and media, not with, you know, cat calls and, you know, what has happened to us over the years, but they're actually listening. Now, maybe it's because he's from Harvard. That may be yeah, the I mean, whole that probably thing. has a lot to do with it. I, I mean, I think also, um, you know, the I think I think asking the question without necessarily suggesting any answer may be a little safer. Well, he actually has a whole bunch of answers. He has six reasons well, he, why the damn thing has to be artificial. Which yeah, I, I mean, his solar sail hypothesis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now he's um, missing some of the ones that we found. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him because I think we found some things that he hasn't even begun to think of. Well, it's definitely not unscientific to to be curious, right? That's the most scientific thing. See, to me, it's even kind of mind-boggling that we have to phrase it that way. Yeah. Why well, do we have to put the caveat? Why can't we ask any damn question we want and use the evidence to support it or refute it, period? Yeah, and you know, I think – you know, if you can make, if you can phrase it in a testable way, you know, and a test can be conducted, then you know it's a pretty straightforward process to determine whether or not you know it holds water. Hmm. And you know, but but scientists, you know, well, you know, natural philosophers, scientists, you know, at the edge of whatever paradigm is currently the received view, as Thomas Kuhn, you know, pointed out, you know, generally are ridiculed and. And uh, and you know are seen as a threat. There's an immune response mm. um, to visceral you know, immune response. Yeah, there's an immune response to, to anything that challenges received view. And you know scientific revolutions are they have this sort of repeating pattern. You know it's a kind of a dialectical. Yeah, but you know what uh, his his ultimate conclusion was about how a new idea gets born. Go ahead. All the old, you know, what's die off. 
<laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, partly, it, you know, you, it's a generational thing. It does, you know, there is that, that, you know, the, the adherence of the, of, of, of the previous received view have to retire. So they make room for people with new ideas. To put it very diplomatically. Yeah. Okay, so let's just back to the crowd because I want to get to how you connected with Elon Musk to put the first damn global ancient archive into orbit. Hmm. Okay, so let's 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 fast forward. So, so we we located this quartz technology, and um, you know they had received a little bit of publicity when they had announced what they could do because it was you know five D Superman memory is a very captivated captivating idea. Um, and of course, Superman, we should also point out, Superman had popularized the idea of the transmitting archives in crystals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's how Superman was, was given the knowledge of his civilization. And anyway, so I, it took a lot of work to, to, to contact um, the scientists involved, it, more than a year of, of sending emails and not getting any answers. And finally, uh, I managed to reach a graduate student and from there, reached uh, the researcher, and one thing led to another, um, and I I made a visit out to their lab and uh, had a, a meeting, and we, we we sort of hit it off, and you know I told them about what I was thinking of doing, and it was right in line. I was going to say, what was your approach? Hey, I got this great idea to create a lasting archive that will last long after the human race and the earth even is dust. Yeah, want to play? Yeah, pretty much, that's what I said, and, <laughs> and you know it turned out. You know, the, the research was really funded um, around this, around the concept of cold storage and, and, and better optical disks. But the, the scientist, the main scientist, uh, Dr. Peter Kazansky, um, who's the world's leading expert in um, how you make these nanogradings, um, he actually uh, has always been inspired by the idea that we can create these long-term archives. I mean, that's a big... Uh, kind of vision of his, you know, he shares the vision. And so mm. we connected on that and he showed me that he had actually been, he'd been making them, you know, dem- demonstration versions. You know, he'd done the like the Bible and, you know, the Magna Carta and, you know, the constitution and, you know, some, some various manuscripts that he had encoded as tests. Uh, so I said, well, you know, we, we are, are trying to get this archive and we're, we want to get it onto something in space. We don't know what yet, but, but I need something to show. And in fact, um, you know, this Elon Musk guy keeps talking about doing stuff in space and he's pretty interesting, you know, and I know that his favorite books and the books that really influenced me were the Isaac Asimov foundation trilogy. Wow. Uh, and so why don't we write that trilogy as our test you know, demo disc. Now, these are very hard to make at the time, especially. I mean, it was a big deal. You, you've got millions of dollars. What time frame are we talking about? Oh, gosh. Uh, wow. Um, well, must have been about three or four years ago. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. And, uh, and it anyway, took what, like a room full of equipment to do oh, it's a, one it's disc? A lab. It's, it's an optoelectronics lab. It's in the, one of the best top optoelectronics labs in the world. This is a this within that lab is a lab with it's just full of you know optical equipment, extremely powerful you know five hundred thousand dollar lasers, um, you know computer controlled stages that can move things around very precisely while you write to them, lots and lots of computers, wires everywhere, 
you know, optical benches, holography systems. I mean, it's a really, it's a, it's a pretty intense, it looks like the inside of a submarine in there. It's a playground. It's a playground, <laughs> yeah. It's like the MIT Media Lab. Um, so really packed with gear and wires and lasers. Um, so it was a really Nerdy cool heaven, okay. Nerdy heaven. So, um, you know, basically, uh, you know, very exotic. And at the time, the technology, you know, quartz is a very hard glass, very hard. And there had been some other research on creating nanogratings, but in soft glass. The problem is they had a lot of noise so they, between them because the glass was soft, and so it would kind of heat, overheat, and um, they couldn't store as much data. Kazansky uh, figured out how to do it in quartz, um, which is special because since it's so hard, you can, you can put the pulses very close together, and they won't interfere with each other. The glass is hard enough that um, you don't kind of create these disturbances, and that's why they can achieve such high density. Anyway, um, so in this, in this lab, um, he agreed to write this for us. And at the time, you know, the, the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy um, text is about three megabytes um, for the three books. And, you know, that took us, you know, more than a month of continuous writing to write because it was pretty slow. The quartz technology, you know, is, is increasing. It'll take about 10 years to reach the point where it's faster than, you know, optical discs today. Um, right now we're at the point where uh, if we wanted to write one terabyte, it would take 20 years of 24 seven. Oh my God. Yeah. So the write speed isn't very fast. Now and here's a big question. We got three minutes to the bottom of the hour. The biggie I'm thinking of is <clears throat> where are the readers? Uh, How do you read well, this exist. stuff? They don't, they, they're working on wait, wait, wait. Back, say that again, please, slowly. There are no readers other than a special you know, polarizing microscope. You can read the dots one by one with a polarizing microscope. Um, they're working on trying to create the technology to do fast readout. So think about it like you know, the early days of, of, of optical storage. You, know, you can write. You have to create readers. Right now, the reader is the lab. Right? It's the whole lab. That's how you read these. Just like in the early days of optical discs, you know, the way you would read one of these was with a refrigerator-sized unit in a lab. Um, but they rapidly get miniaturized if they go into if they have commercial potential. And so the the belief is that, you know, if they can achieve, if they can speed up the write speed such that it becomes feasible to really use this as a form of cold storage for server farms, for example, um, then there'll be enough incentive to to, to miniaturize the readout and, and, and make it less expensive. Mm. So the plan is a 10-year kind of plan. And by the way, Microsoft, um, Microsoft Research has, has, has given a big grant to that lab. Um, so they're heavily interested in this as a possible cold storage technology as a solution. You know, one of the issues um, with server farms is they consume so much energy, you know, the cooling, Electricity consumes so much energy that in 10 years from now, with the amount of big data we're dealing with, um, one of the challenges, of, if you want to actually back up your data to cold storage, which you have to do, then um, it will consume so much energy, it will have a meaningful effect on global GDP. Good grief. Okay, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Nova Spivak. And this is the ancient music of the Krell from Forbidden Planet. 
stored in some kind of memory disk for 20 million years. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Now, what we played going into the break was fiction. It was electronic tonal music set to the incredibly important movie, I think, in uh, popular culture, Forbidden Planet, back in 1956. The synthesized recordings of a civilization gone millions and millions of years. But what is this? This is a recording made by the Esa spacecraft, the Rosetta spacecraft, as it approached within about 100 miles of a little chunk of spinning ice and something else called 67P, a comet maybe, although there are those of us that have very different ideas about what this object is. And they only heard it a couple of times, and it's all disappeared, all but disappeared from scientific discussion. Their websites with wild speculation. But to me, it sounds mechanical. It sounds intelligent it sounds modulated is it maybe we can find out
Okay, we're back. Nova, please pick up. Okay, so let's see. Uh, where were we? So we were talking about um, how you go from creating a disc that will last forever to reading yep. the damn disc. Yep. So um, the readout, of course, is a challenge today. Uh, it can be done with a microscope and uh, a special kind of microscope, which is pretty exotic, a polarizing microscope. Um, and so what we did was we, we wrote the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy as our demonstration disc, uh, two courts in this, in this lab in the UK. It's the only place in the world that can do it. Um, and we wrote a decoding key that was visible optically on the inside rim of the disc, of the, of the little disc. And you can see a picture of it um, on the web page associated with this broadcast. And okay, which um, which picture we're we looking at? Um, I think we're looking at number uh, nine. Number nine shows the Num- number nine the, the decoding key, okay. and it, it basically shows uh, how to read the polarization of these nano gratings, such that you can uh, understand. Okay, what information is stored as nano gratings inside a small quartz. This, this is in English. Mm-hmm. The key to decode is located in a small circle in the middle of the disk. For scientific info, please see. And there's two websites, three websites, I think. Yeah, of course, which won't matter in a million years. Exactly. So how do you tell um, people that well, don't? The pic- well, there's this little color scale, as you can see, this polarization diagram. And then there's, there's a, a little excerpt that shows how this works on the right. All right. Mm-hmm. It shows nanogratings encoded and what they are and how you read it. Now, you know, this was an early attempt. I mean, we didn't have much uh, available storage to work with. We, we, had to, we had to, this decoding key, by the way, what we wrote here is what we put on the web to get it out into, you know, into lots of places, into, into oral history, into our archives, if you will. But what's written onto the disk is actually just these two circles with the letters. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that is the decoding key, and it basically shows... Um, optically visible analog, you know, these letters, A, B, C, D, and so forth, um, with the um, corresponding um, polarization patterns in these two extra dimensions, the, the slow axis angle and retardance. By so the way, let me, let me interrupt here. I'm looking at the broadcast from Griffith. The lunar eclipse is almost over. You can see the curved, beautiful shadow of the Earth. Um, on the moon, a beautiful moon emerging, covering about the final third of the disk with Tycho just emerging into sunlight at the bottom edge of the edge of the earth. Amazing technology. We can do this live all over the world tonight. We can send all this live, but can we send it down through time? So if this is kind of a a experiment, Nova, into the future, you write your, your, your material, and then you pray that somebody in a future time can figure out how to devise a, a reader. Is, is that the strategy, or are well, we going to eventually the, be able to create quartz, one on Earth? Yeah. With the quartz disk, um, you know, they, the, you know, we designed it as a demo to show to people. It wasn't supposed to be the, the payload. We were, it was a demonstration object. Mm-hmm. No, so everybody is sending me emails saying, saying, how the hell did you connect with Musk and get it in the car? Well, that's the fun story. So 
you know, I, I was running a social analytics company uh, that was doing data mining and, you know, monitoring um, how ideas were spreading across the globe for big brands and, and governments and, and uh, advertisers and so forth that wanted to understand, you know, what people think about different issues. And since I had effectively, you know, an incredible supercomputer at my disposal, we were, you know, we were watching the fire hose of social media as well as TV, radio, and all print media uh, that, around the world. We, we had an incredible view of what was going on. So since I had made this disc with Elon Musk in mind, knowing that he liked these books, in fact, there was an article about that, uh, about his favorite books, and these were his favorite books, um, I decided, well, I'll just start monitoring Elon Musk to see what he's talking about. And if he ever starts talking about doing anything or talks about foundation or talks about doing anything in space, you know, I'll tweet to him um, about this to see if I can get his attention. Mm. And so I put these uh, sort of monitors out and started, you know, just waiting. And lo and behold, you know, this disc, by the way, I had, you know, we made five of these discs, these what we call arcs. Um, and we made five of them and, you know, we, we had um, – I had a couple of them and some other members of our team had some, but these, you know, one of them was sort of sitting on my desk, you know, another was on the shelf in my office. And, you know, I, sometimes I had it in my pocket because I'd be taking it to show people. So you're physically in LA and he's physically in Hawthorne, which is kind of yeah. up the street. So you're not physically that far apart. Yeah, but he's a very hard guy to reach. Of, of course, well. of course. Uh, anyway, so what happened was one day he suddenly tweeted um, a picture of the Tesla being loaded onto the fairing um, for the Falcon Heavy test launch. Sort of all of a sudden, you know, he announced that they were going to launch a Tesla instead of a block of cement um, for their test launch. Brilliant marketing. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, and, of course, all the, all the alerts that I had set started triggering, you know, and <laughs> my, my console was lighting up. You know, Elon Musk is talking about space and you know, crazy things. And I saw that and it just Danger Will there. Robinson, Danger right. Will Robinson. I just happened to be there at the right time. I mean, maybe it was fate, but I was literally there right when it happened. And so I immediately constructed a tweet, but not just any tweet. I had spent a lot of time working on viral ideas and, and how ideas function like viruses. You know, people have, a lot of people misuse or they use the word meme, but they don't really understand what it means. Um, anyway, I constructed a meme um, very carefully where it basically said, you know, dear Elon, um, we made this you know, disc for you containing the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy that lasts you know, for a really long time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we, would you take it with you on the Tesla? But I, you know, I didn't leave it at that. I also put into the message, you know, friends, please retweet this so that Elon notices it because he gets a lot of tweets. No single so, point failure. And, you know, I also called in a few favors to some friends of mine who have huge audiences. And so um, lots and lots of people started retweeting this. I mean, there was no possible way Elon Musk you know, would, <laughs> would not see my tweet because they kept retweeting it. It was like self-perpetuating. And so, you know, it's not like they just retweeted it once, you know, but they just kept retweeting it. And so he replied finally. Um, and he said, oh, that's a good way to do it. Um, and then I replied to him. We had a conversation, a little conversation in front of, what, 20 million people on Twitter. 
um, where he agreed to take it. Wow. Um, which was exciting. However, after that, um, there were then really huge obstacles to actually getting to him to actually make it happen because we didn't have any direct way to contact him. And, there, you know, there's layers and layers of people around them that you know, prevent you from reaching him. That's their job. So um, even though we had this sort of gentleman's agreement on Twitter, you know, actually getting the disc to him, meeting with him and, and actually making this happen it was the next challenge. And so, you know, then we started working through every network and channel we have. I mean, I, I went, I went to Elon through dozens of different channels. I have, you know, through his bankers, through his friends, through his business partners, through employees, you know, through investors, he knows. I mean, I, I went to him through lots of channels and finally one of them worked and uh, got us a meeting. So um, it was a, you know, a short meeting at his office. Um, so we show up, um, me and my co-founder, Nick Slavin. Uh, we brought the arc discs with us. And you know, we were waiting, of course, a long wait in the lobby. Um, there's all kinds of crises happening that day. And so he's super busy and doesn't probably have time to see us. We finally go into his office and he's sitting at his desk using his computer and doesn't look up. He's just typing away. You know, we're standing there, nowhere to sit, and he's just typing and doing stuff and he doesn't say anything, he just ignores us. And finally he looks up and he says, What is this about? I don't have time for this. This isn't important. I have real work to do. Basically get out. Wow. <laughs> and so um, talk about you know, making I, a first a impression. Yeah, and I had a whole presentation, you know, I had this whole dog and pony show and slides and handouts. And anyway, I quickly realized, okay, that's not going to happen, right? So it's either, I either have to get his attention right away or, you know, this is over. So I just pull out one of these discs and drop it on his desk in front of him in a, in a nice little, we actually um, uh, 3D printed a, a very special holder. There's a picture of it, of the cover of the holder on your your site. Which one is this? Picture number, uh, hold on, let me go back. That is uh, number seven. That's just the outside of the thing. But when you open that up, seven. Oh. A, a little, yeah, you see that it says the Archimedes Foundation. Right, it's right. One of this had a, it was in a case, but this case, when you open it, um, inside of it is a little platform that kind of rotates and it lifts up the disc. It's holding the disc. Oh, a little dog and pony thingy. Yeah, so I put this down in front of him and I open it up and, you know, this little disc rises and swivels and, you know, on this pedestal, on this post. And, and I say, this has the Foundation Trilogy in it. And he says, that has the Foundation Trilogy in it? It's in there? And I said, yeah. And then, you know, I, he got interested. He picked it up, started looking at it. I handed him, a, uh, you know, we, we had a, a jeweler's loop and, and other things, a uh, you know, microscope and so forth, uh, to look, look at it with. Um, so he started looking at it and we, we had a, a dialogue about you know, what this is and how it's made and its quartz and nano gratings and so forth. Um, and he said, yeah, I'll take it. I'm going to take it. So um, he said, I, I, it, it's great. I want it. And, and so I thought he was saying he was going to take it in his Tesla. Mm -hmm. So he said, thank you very much. And, uh, we said, could we do a photo? And so my co-founder and, and I and Elon did a photo, which we've never shared. It's a, it's a, a special photo. We'll, someday we'll share it. But 
we did a photo of us holding the, the arc disc and giving it to him. You know, there's only five of these. And at the time, I mean, to make one of these effectively, I mean, there is no price. I mean, I was just going to say roughly ballpark. Are we talking millions? I mean, if you had to buy the lab and make the thing, certainly millions. Um, and these guys were doing research. They weren't doing, they, and they still are. They don't make discs for people. And, and so, you know, if you want one, it, you know, it's basically we have an arrangement now where if you want one, uh, we're the, the group they work with and you can come to us. But, you know, it, it's certainly going to be, you know, high five figures to six figures to do it now. But at the time when we did it years ago, you know, I would say it would be at least a million dollars per desk. Of wow. Value. Did you tell him this? To do it. Um, I didn't mention that at the time. I later told his assistant. But anyway, he said, thanks. I'm going to put it in my personal library. <laughs> I said, no, you're not. You're taking it to Mars. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm putting it in my personal library. I don't want to put it in space. I want to keep it. So I said, fine. I'm going to give you another one. <laughs> we only had five. Mm. So I handed them. I gave him two of the five, first two discs. I said, fine. Here's one for your library. And here's one to put in the test. He said, okay, fine. So I'll, I'll, I'll put the other one in the test lab. And and so then, you know, Nova, this is such an insight into how incredibly important historic things happen. Yeah. We think they're all carefully, carefully, meticulously planned. It, it's like, what was that great line? You know, life is what happens when you're making plans. Yeah. It's like there's such a huge entropic component to this. Yeah. I it's mean, astonishing. A lot of so, um, so that was that. And then, you know, we just didn't hear a word. They went completely dark mm-hmm. uh, and we couldn't reach anyone. The assistant, nobody would talk to us. And so we, we just hoped that in fact, he was going to put it in, in the, in the Tesla, but we weren't sure. And, and, and so we waited and uh, we set up a control room, a little, you know, just for the live stream and monitoring everything on the day of the launch. And, you know, we're watching launch and, we still hadn't heard anything and we weren't sure um, they had told us not to announce anything um, until they, you know, they had told us before that, you know, don't announce anything. You're not allowed to say anything. It's all confidential, blah, blah, blah. Mm. We agreed. So, you know, we were just in this waiting period. Everything was completely obfuscated. So we're sitting there watching the, the, sh- the live stream prior to the launch and they're doing the, the countdown and they're talking about everything. And there's, you know, the whole SpaceX team, you know, super excited. Um, and all of a sudden they run uh, a segment about this Easter egg, you know, and inside of the Falcon Heavy, in, inside of the Tesla in the Falcon Heavy, um, there's, there are some Easter eggs. Um, and they, and they, they do a whole segment on, these discs. In fact, that's still online. You can find it. I remember uh, vividly. I saw it live. When we saw that, I mean, we just started <laughs> jumping up and down and screaming and, you know, hugging each other. I mean, I literally, I was, I, I started weeping. I mean, it was just so huge, um, you know, because now at this point, you know, I had been dreaming about doing this for probably 20 years, at oh. least not my whole life. Right. And here, you know, it just suddenly happened. And we were just so surprised that they would, they made this beautiful segment. You know, it was really nice where they showed the discs and explained it. Do we have a link to that on the website? Did you send it's that not link? There. Um, it's on the, I can find it. It's linked on the ARC mission. 
site. Go to Arc Machine. Yeah, just send it to Contia. We'll put it up for the Club 19.5 members. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. Um, anyway, so as soon as that happened, of course, you know, our PR team said, well, okay, they've announced it, so we can, we can start talking to people. And uh, we also started getting a lot of calls. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. And, uh, of course, you know, I, we were just riveted. The, the, the launch of the, of the Tesla was, I, I think, the most iconic I mean, piece of performance art in history. Oh, my God, yes. And one of the most iconic photos, videos. I mean, just one of the most iconic images. Click ever. on number five, folks. Yeah, I mean, There's yeah. Starman, and in his yeah. glove compartment is Nova's Little Discs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, just amazing to be part of that. I mean, just, I think it's one of the coolest things that ever happened. And what's, and what's really great is that it's also a really weird object, which, you know, you know, even though it, a lot of it will probably be shredded over time by, you know, the space. You mean, you mean the Tesla itself? Yeah. It will Tesla disintegrate. It's a weird thing to put in space. Like, what is this thing floating around? You know, if anybody were to come to our solar system and, you know, we think that the projections in, indicate that um, this this will be there for at least 30 million years. After that, the mass gets too imprecise to be sure, but they know it won't collide with anything for at least 30 million years. That doesn't mean it won't be there longer. It could be there much longer. Mm. Um, you know, our quartz disk is probably the longest lasting thing in the Tesla. Um, it's, and the Tesla is a very good protective shell for the disk, you know, got some layered, you know, composites, that kind of thing. Yeah. There's some aluminum and stuff, right? I mean, it, it helps. Um, you know, the, the, the plastics and so forth will probably get shredded, you know, the star man and, you know, the seats and the seat belts and, you know, a lot of that stuff may not survive that long in space. We don't know. Now, but, this is in the little case in the glove compartment? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's stored in the glove compartment. Uh, he put some other things in the glove compartment. Um, you know, we, we believe he put the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Cool. Um, but as a paper book, I think, or something. We're mm. not sure. Um, he never really fully explained it. Um, so we're in there. Um, See, what to me is so incredibly striking, Nova, and I didn't know until we talked a couple of days ago, that to encode the Foundation Trilogy from my old friend Isaac Asimov was your idea. Well, I always got the impression it was Musk's idea. Um, it was your idea. And I don't know whether you understand how incredibly important that selection of everything you could have done was and is. Well, I was very aware of that, actually. I mean, I, as well as the fact that I know that, you know, I knew that Elon loved the book. I love, I love the series. Um, but also it was very self-referential, right, to what we're doing. You know, that the first thing we send um, would be a story about people creating an encyclopedia, you know, to spread across uh, the, the galaxy yes, yes. Um, to, to help humanity recover from a future dark age. Yeah. By the way, you know what your next one needs to be for going to the moon and other places, right? Um, you tell me. Nightfall. Oh, interesting. Nightfall. Remember Nightfall? You know, I don't think I read Nightfall. Oh, my God. I'm not going to blow it for you. Right. It's a short story. You'll find it online. Nightfall, his first major. It's what made Isaac Asimov Isaac. Uh -huh. Nightfall. Nightfall. I won't, I won't uh, well, blur the surprise. Well, the good news is um, that I am sending all of Asimov's work and lots of other things, uh, future missions. So okay. we'll definitely be there. Um, so, so, you know, of course, there were many 
days and weeks that followed as various groups tried to project the trajectory. And of course, they overshot the, the original goal. And, you know, that's actually great because it, it put us into a place where we last even longer. Um, so what the, it turns out is that, you know, this is the first library in space. If you define a library as more than one book. Mm -hmm. Three books, it's a little library, library of books. So it's the first library in space. Um, it's also the longest lasting library that humans have ever made. Not necessarily. <clears throat> I think I've got one up on you because I was, of course, Eric and I were, Eric Burgess and I were seminal in working with Sagan to create the pioneer plaque. <laughs> and then the cottage industry that evolved into the Voyager records. We think they're going to last at least a billion years because they're in interstellar space. There's nothing out there. And the erosion rates are so tiny and they're moving so slow that the projections are protected up under the the uh, high gain antenna of Pioneer one and uh, ten and eleven, they'll last maybe a billion years. Well, there are artifacts, that will, but they're not libraries in the sense that they don't contain books. Mm, picky, picky, picky. Huh? <laughs> no, you're right. They are well, but they are they're multiple level messages. So are they a library? There are messages. I will give you that they are messages, but they're not libraries in the sense of a library of books. Okay. They have some audio tracks. They have some images. Oh, the, the Voyager records, yeah. yeah. I was thinking primarily of the plaque because that was the first yeah. one that we got well, taken to. I wouldn't call that a library, right? I mean, that's a plaque. Hmm. We can argue. Yeah, anyway. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a cool idea because remember when, cool when, 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 we, when we did all this, Sagan called me up at the Hayden one day and he said, I've got some press people want to talk to you. And they said, why did you do this? And I said, well, no one's ever going to find it. At least I don't think so. It's a message to us. It's an affirmation that we think someone's out there and we're ready to communicate. It was a message to mankind. Yes, although it's a message that we'll never receive after a few generations from now. It'll be too far away. We won't be able to actually, you know, if, 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 if our civilization survives, we may remember that we did it. Well, we have to keep the Smithsonian from going out and picking it up and bringing it back. That's my main concern. Yeah, well, that'll be hard. To do unless we can achieve some pretty high speeds so um yeah i mean i what the, the trilogy is about 900 pages right mm -hmm. and so this is 900 pages of text and the cover covers um as well as some other a little bit of arc mission stuff that was there but basically um we hadn't this was accidental and there was actually you know in a sense it was accidental because we hadn't we hadn't Planned on no, wait a minute. No, love, when you say that, do you really think all of this was just an accident or was it an extraordinary hyperdimensional resonance? Who knows? I, I, I don't have the answer to that question. Look at all the obstacles. Look at all the wow. hoops you had to jump through. Look at the impossibility of even getting must to pay attention. Yeah. And it all worked. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, the the odds of all these things clicking into place just just right at just the right moment you know extremely low um but you know the odds of the universe existing are also <laughs> very low so um so that was you know a momentous event and it and it really validated what we were doing and it led to a lot of people joining and our organization which is a nonprofit, um you know really starting to gain some momentum from there, we started getting contacted by folks with other technologies uh, that could be useful. 
And, um, and this is where we kind of segue into the next technology that we started using. Okay, we only got about three minutes, so let's let's stay on this. Um, have you heard back from Musk? No. We've you, never communicated with him since. He, we'd like to. Uh, we've, we've tried. Uh, we have not been able to. Why have you kept the photograph that you guys all took secret? Well, they asked us to. Okay. Um, you know, but Under pain of what? Nothing. I mean, we don't have to. I okay. I mean, if he's not talking to you, why not? What do you got to lose? Yeah. I don't know. I've thought about it. And maybe we will. Why don't you send it to continue and we'll put it up on the other side of midnight? Uh-huh. Well, you know, I, I think I think I think I have to think about that. Well, we'll give it time. I mean, I have, I've never released the picture. It's, it's that it's moment. It's been a year. Yeah. More than a year. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. It's a good picture. So, um, anyway, you know, that's kind of where we left it. Um, and then, of course, you know, Musk uh, mentioned he was going to send pictures of Tesla owners in glass on, a, on another mission. I don't know if he's really serious or if that was just a midnight tweet. Um, I don't, it didn't happen. I don't know if he's going to do it. And, and that's all we know. Tell you what, hold it there. We're at the top of the hour, midnight, the witching hour here in the land of enchantment. If you want to join the conversation, you can call us at 917-889-8802, 917-889-8802. My guest this morning, Nova Spivak, and we're talking about messages across space and time. We shall return. The side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. 
www.theothersideofmidnight.com. back to the other side of midnight the eclipse is over the last one of 2019 the first and the last hope you didn't miss it i mean there are recordings but recordings are not reality or maybe they are i mean nova with this experiment incredibly successful as it is i presume you've learned an awful lot about creating immortal deep time archives what have you learned? Well, uh, you know, we, we actually learned a lot more uh, after uh, the, the crystal that we sent on the Tesla. Um, as we started thinking about really doing it on a much larger scale. I mean, that, that what we sent on the Tesla was in three famous books, the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy. But... Um, you know, what we really want to do is make a backup of, of human civilization. And there's a lot more data that you have to send, and there are a lot of deep questions. And I was going to say, a technology that takes you 20 years to write one, well, library. Obviously, we, that's not going to be feasible. Right? Yeah. We can't use courts today to, to store petabytes of data because it's too, the write speeds are too slow. So we, we had to find something else. Um, and the, there were other questions as well. Um, Stephen Wolfram, a friend of mine, famous, uh, he would call himself a natural philosopher, um, but a you know, mathematician, physicist, genius, uh, created Mathematica and Wolfram Alpha. Um, we've had a long friendship, and, and he wrote a huge article about how difficult it is to actually understand artifacts of ancient civilizations, and even to figure out that they are artifacts. Mm. And that was something he wrote, at, you know, at, in reference to our conversations. Um, and, you know, he made some really good points. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things which... Can you send me a copy of that? Because I happen to kind yeah, of be intrigued with it. I, I can send that to you and we can, you know, share that with your members. Um, so, you know, it's a really insightful article. Um, I, I actually disagree with them in a bunch of areas. Um, like, like, like where? So let's, let's be specific. Well, I mean, you know, he, it, it, this gets into some deep stuff. Um, but basically, you know, he has this whole principle of computational irreducibility where, you know, objects or things that are capable of, of a certain level of computation are essentially equivalent computational equivalents. Uh, and so um, basically if something is um, that computer, com- computationally sophisticated, um, number one, you, you really can't figure out what it's going to do any faster than just waiting for it to do it. Um, and so, you know, Wolfram's theories talk about, you know, basically that nature is the best computer for nature. Really, you can't really simulate or, or compute nature any faster than nature does it. There's no shortcuts because, um, you know, even simple things in nature like, you know, a plant or an atom are, are actually computationally equivalent to you know, sophisticated things like the, a human being um, in that they are doing a level of computation that um, you simply um, have to just watch. You can't, you can't really simulate it. See, one of the one of, I, I kind of agree with him in one sense because when Eric and I learned from Sagan that that uh, JPL that afternoon that 
there was a five pound overage for the Pioneer launch that they had taken something off some instrument and they had five pounds waiting for somebody to say, I want that five pounds. He and I were discussing a kind of a lucite brick that would be on the spacecraft that would contain plant samples and human, you know, materials, DNA and all kinds of things that you couldn't send as a message. But if an AET civilization picked this thing up in a billion years or whatever, and they found this encased in a, you know, lucite thing that would have prevented radiation from destroying what was inside, more or less, they'd have so much to work with that was redundant. They could figure out what we look like. They could figure out how bright we are. They could figure out, we wanted to add a few more things like, you know, libraries, you know, but Sagan didn't go that route. He basically created with Frank Drake and his wife, a plaque, which had pulsar coatings so that would show roughly how long this had been in transit that showed the outline form of two naked human beings, which created all kinds of mainstream backlash in the press, you know, silly factor and all that. And very little data except somebody existed to do this and cared enough to send the very best. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that was good thinking, some of the stuff you were thinking and, and um, you know, you'll, you'll find out in the future that we've done exactly that. Wow. Um, but we'll talk about that later. Okay. Um, in any case, yeah, I mean, Wolfram's article is an enormous article, I think 40 pages long, so we won't try to summarize it here. It's best to just read it. Um, but his, his, his main point is that, uh, you know, he thinks it's impossible to communicate our knowledge um, to recipients in the distant future because they won't know that it's knowledge. They'll think it's just you know, a decorative, a piece of decorative art or just a random. Oh, you mean the standard anthropological ceremonial object? Yes, a ceremonial object, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And he even talks about that. Um, And he has lots of examples. I mean, you know, Wilfram is, he is. Maybe he's overthinking this because if anybody's exploring, I mean, we're looking avidly for libraries in the solar system. I mean, I found ruins. I've got a whole team looking at images of NASA and other space agencies showing ruins over and over and over and over again. You don't tell me these guys weren't sophisticated enough to realize they had to leave something for future generations. We even think we're seeing ancient spacecraft on the surface of some of these objects, comets, asteroids. They're not really comets or asteroids. Like there were successive missions to these places looking for information, kind of like we called among our, in our group the stations of the cross. So I think Wolfram is completely wrong because the endemic of curiosity of being a sapient being is you want to find out more, particularly where the hell you came from or some other consciousness came from and what they may have left as an enormous Easter egg. Well, yeah, I think my, my view is that, um, you know, it depends on how intentionally you construct your message. You know, I mean, uh, there, I think it is possible. And so, okay, let, let, let me interrupt. I just had an interesting thought. Have we discovered on earth among all the ancient civilizations we've looked at, have we ever discovered a specific archive dedicated to future generations? Well, or, I mean, the, I, it's an interesting question. I mean, there, ha, there, there are certainly um, uh, inscriptions and monuments and plaques that talk about the histories of, of dynasties and monarchies. You just mentioned it so liminally. The Rosetta Stone. 
well, the Rosetta Stone, for example. Um, there's, there are things like this, right? There are these histories. There's, you know, in ancient Persia carved into the side of a mountain. Oh, I remember so that one. It's up very high. You can't even mm-hmm. get to it. So, you know, they, they, these, of course, I think there was this conscious, you know, preservation of history. I mean, you, even the history on the pyramids that's there, you know. So they were certainly trying to communicate. And, and, the, and there's also a question of, you know, why are so many of these monuments aligned to um, the stars at a certain period of time, the same period of time, at a different point in the processional cycle, mm-hmm. right? And you know, what is that? The big clock. Right. So what's that? Yep. All about? Yep. yep. Um, so, you know, it's possible. Sir, I, I think it's likely. I mean, humans have always, I think, wanted to pass things down. And so I, I don't think it's unlikely. Um, in any case, we started thinking about, well, OK, let's now now that we have some credibility and, you know, we beat everybody to this. We did this. <laughs> nobody thought we could do it. Now let's let's really go in. How do you top yourself after you get Elon Musk, Mr. Distracted himself? To put your disc in the damn car. Yeah, I mean that was that was a high point for sure. But the way we the way we top that is now, you know, we have um, the solar library. You could you can consider, you know, a ring of archives around the sun. This is uh, you know other than Earth, of course. Um, this the, the the Tesla was the first installment in the solar library. Um, the Earth library is a set of archives on and around Earth. Um, the lunar library is a set of archives on and around the moon, and we'd like to put them around other celestial bodies, as well as in you know, particular interesting locations, um, you know, the, the different L5, L, you know, Lagrange points and so forth, mm. um, where uh, one would likely look. Um, and our, our thought is, one way to do it is to piggyback on any mission that will take us. You know, even, even if you're discarding part of your rocket and it's not going to come back, mm-hmm. um, stick us in there because now it's not junk. It's a library. It's like the right? upper stages of the Apollo S4B, for instance. Exactly. But if there was an archive in there in the hall, then, you know, it's a library. It might be retrieved someday by a future archaeologist or salvage operation. Mm. Um, or, you know, might be used as raw materials to build something else in space. Um, but, you know, they might find it. So our, our feeling is, as well as, you know, our own missions, which we'll eventually do, um, and certainly we're already starting uh, some on Earth as well, um, you know, we want to we be on every mission by every space agency and every private space organization that's sending anything into any long-term place in space. Okay. Um, so the concept is the Earth Library, deep underground locations and undersea locations, um, natural caves, for example. Um, so we're starting a study of cave environments, and we've designed something we call the Civilization Box for Earth, which um, the challenge is to make something that not only contains the archives, but also contains the tools, the technologies for actually accessing them. So let's preserve microscopes and some computers and power supplies and other things and see how long we can actually make them last on Earth by putting them in a very special type of container and, you know, uh, using argon gas. So caches of technology that will allow them, whoever they are, to read the archive. We'll make it easier. Now, we know we can make a microscope that will last as long as the archive. We don't have to include in a microscope any hydrocarbons and so forth, plastics and so on. Um, So we can certainly make the microscope that can read these. Because you 18th century technology. 
Mm -hmm. um, but I guess I'm, I'm jumping ahead because I should talk about this new technology that we're using. So quartz, we like quartz, but, you know, it's just we are, you know, we're moving faster than that technology is. And so we have to wait. You know, in 10 years, we'll probably be able to use quartz for big data. Right now, we needed something else to really do what we're trying to do. And we were approached by various people, and I followed a lot of different leads and met with lots of scientists in different labs, spoke to inventors and technologists, and basically looked at everything. Um, and we came to the conclusion, finally, um, that we ought to be um, – etching this data into nickel. Hmm. Um, and um, there has been some work. There was a study done at Los Alamos. You know, there was, a, there was a period of time when people were worried about nuclear war. In fact, they should be more worried now than they were then. But in any case, they were more worried then. And there was a lot of work, studies done by governments um, in, in how, do you, how do you back up your critical information so that it could survive a nuclear war. And, and one of those studies at Los Alamos, um, nickel as a medium. Now we're talking um, the element metal nickel. Pure nickel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The element nickel. Um, and studied its durability uh, and, and came to the conclusion that, you know, it would, it's an incredibly good choice um, for preserving important information. The reason okay. being? Well, it doesn't oxidize. It has no half-life. Um, you know, it's an element. Um, it's... You know, the studies showed that, you know, uh, in Earth's atmosphere, or even in salt water, um, you know, tens of thousands of years was realistic. Um, so it's the best medium we have other than stone. So unless you physically debrade it or destroy it with right. mechanical action, it's yeah. pretty much immortal. Stable. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the other, the other interesting thing about it is, um, you know, it can withstand very high heat. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Of course, thousands of degrees. Nothing will happen. Inconel, the uh, the uh, coatings of the uh, SR seventy one. Yeah, and it also, of course, it's not magnetic, so an EMP is not going to affect it. It's not no electronics. It's, it's inert. It's passive. Uh, so it's a lot of great properties. And and so the work that had originally been done was looking at etching data into nickel using focused ion beam or an electron beam. Why not? Um, and, why not lasers? Well. We'll get to that. Okay. Um, nobody had a laser system that could really do this at the time. Because, um, you know, if you're writing directly into the nickel, um, the laser would have to be incredibly powerful um, to actually ablate the nickel in an interesting way. And lots of challenges would be very slow. Um, so they, they were looking at focused ion beams and electron beams. And um, those are those work. You can actually write incredibly high resolution, but they're very expensive. They're very slow. You have to have a vacuum chamber uh, and it's a, it's pretty difficult. And so even though you can do it to do large quantities of data um, would be prohibitively hard with a fib or an electron beam. However, uh, we started exploring that and speaking to folks who had those had had fibs and, and, uh, and so forth. And um, we explored it very, very seriously. Um, but as luck would have it, we were eventually contacted by a scientist who came out of Kodak originally, who um, his name is Bruce Haw, and, and he, uh, he's a physicist, um, an engineer, who ha specializes in optics and was one of the inventors of photo CDs, an expert on optical storage. And, you know, as in the era when it was clear that optical storage was not going to ultimately beat 
um, other forms of storage and, and Kodak was starting to see the light, he started thinking about, well, <laughs> how could we use very funny. Technology? Yeah. How could we start, how could we use some of the technologies that we invented to make these optical discs? How could we use them for other, in other ways? Mm. And what, what Bruce realized is that when you, the process of mastering an optical disc is interesting. What you do um, is you first, you use a laser to master it to glass. And then you electroform the nickel. The masters are made of nickel. You electroform layers, layers of nickel from the glass. And, and then you, you basically, you know, you, you make a couple generations to, and eventually, you know, what you get, a master. This is how DVDs are made, for example. It's how, it's how CDs are mastered. The problem, though, with all of those systems is that, you know, it, I mean, that's great. It's still relatively slow for the amount of data that we want to write. And we also want to write analog data, not just digital data. So he, he, had a, he made a big breakthrough, um, which he patented. Um, where basically he's using software-generated single-beam holograms. We don't have to get into all of that. But basically, he has a way to write uh, incredibly fast. I mean, thousands of times faster than what you could do with a FIB or uh, an electron beam. And that's key mm. because you can write so much faster in the way his patents govern basically a, what it's called a polar raster technology. So it's a very rapid, he's spinning a disc and he's, he's writing onto the spinning disc um, with a kind of a polar raster technique. Bottom line is he can write, you know, a thousand or more than a thousand pages a second. This is using lasers. Yeah. With a laser in analog. He's mastering it, right? So he can, he, can, he can write analog images, and he's doing it at 300,000 dots per inch. Oh, my God. So he can create analog pictures, hieroglyphs, as well as digital other storage yeah, algorithms. 300,000 dots per inch. I mean, just to put that in perspective, their laser printer is, what, 4,800? Mm-hmm. Money is in the 20,000 dots per inch range, the highest technologies available for money. Oh. 300,000 dots per inch, I mean, nothing can do that. It's so far beyond, I mean, the, you could do it with a FIB or an ion beam. I mean, sorry, a FIB or, which is an ion beam, or an electron beam. But, you, you know, there's no other thing that you, there's nothing else that can do it. And those are too slow. The point here is that we can write at 300,000 DPI at incredibly high speed. And, and so what this means is that we can make these thin films of nickel, um, whether, you know, they can be as thick as a DVD or CD made of pure nickel, or we can make them as thin as uh, down to 20 microns thick. Um, we're currently making them about 40 microns thick. So they're like, you know, foil, thinner than tin foil, mm-hmm. you know, like a thin piece of plastic, actually thinner than plastic, most plastics. I mean, it's very thin. These thin sheets of nickel, um, and we can write... Um, for example, uh, well, let's look at the pictures. So on your site here, some pictures. Of, we call this nanofiche. That's a trademark, by the way. Okay. Um, so there's microfiche, right? This is nanofiche. Um, and if we scroll down, we can look at um, picture. Uh, well, let's start with, we'll, we'll go down and look at 15. 15, 15, okay. 15. Let's look at this. So 15 is a piece of nanofiche. Um, this is a little rectangle of nanofiche and those little things you see there mm-hmm. those the are raster wikipedia. yeah those are wikipedia pages actually 
And oh, they're little tiny, tiny, tiny pages. Mm. You can almost see them if you click on it again. Scroll down to 17. Okay, going back to 17. That's the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy, I believe. Or no, maybe those are wiki. No, I can't remember. Actually, those might be Wikipedia pages or they might be our our mission pages. But those are some examples of nanofiche at different levels of magnification. So that same thing, that image in 15 nanofiche, if you zoom in on it, 17, that's what's in there. And if you zoom in even more, right? It, you know, you get down to, you know, perfectly visible text as examples 12 and 13. Now, how big are these physically? Um, well, I mean, this little piece of nanofiche, you can see if you look at number 16. Okay. You see that dime there? Yeah. Yeah. So those pieces of nanofiche, I think, have, uh, I think they have around 8,000 pages per sheet. Wow. So this will be a physical library. Yeah. So what we actually originally were thinking is, let's take the whole Wikipedia and print it to Nanofish. Why not? Errors and spellings and mistakes. Everything. Yeah. I mean, Wikipedia is one example. Yeah. And Um, and there you can see in item 16, we actually printed a big chunk of, I think, close to half, I think close to 500,000 pages of the Wikipedia in that little stack of little, see it says Wikipedia? Yeah. We actually made uh, a series of little bound Wikipedias. Sitting, sitting on a, a, a dime? Is that a dime? I think that's sitting on a quarter. Oh, that, that, you're right. That, that's a quarter. Okay. Um, so, you know, these are, it's actually. So, wait a minute. That's a half a million pages. Yeah. It's the largest, smallest book ever printed. Wow. <laughs> so the smallest, largest book, however you want to describe it. Um, so, it's the size well, of a quarter and it's maybe four or five quarters thick. Mm-hmm. It's just little tiny, super thin sheets of nanofiche. Half a million pages. Right. The average book is how many pages? Well, it's, it's pretty, you know, an average book is what, you know, 200 pages? Yeah. What's that? So, yeah. So you can see some other examples, number 18. So this um, is this. the equivalent of the library that was across from my high school in Springfield, Massachusetts. Right. And if you look at picture number 18, that's the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy on nanofiche. You can see the cover, if you will, right there in the middle. Um, and then there's 900 pages arrayed around it. Oh, my gosh. And you can read that with a uh, simple uh, – I mean, you can see it with a jeweler's loop, and you can read it with uh, about a 400-power magnification microscope, which we had, you know, as you said before, I think, 1700, 1800. Yeah, yeah. And, and is, 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 the, is the iridescence part of the attraction yeah, of well, people? Yeah, well, that's the beauty. This is actually – the single beam software-generated holograms you know, what you're seeing um, has diffractive it's around it. So we're, we're etching diffractive patterns around it, and that's where you're getting that beautiful diffractive effect. Like, like Newton's rings, mm-hmm. um, which, which so, fulfills the first criteria. Make it beautiful so it's yeah. not thrown away. Exactly. So, so actually, um, here's some other examples. 14 is the um, – I think that is the – Declaration of Independence, I believe. Um, and then uh, 13. That's what it says. And, and, and 13 are some examples really zoomed in of the actual letters, you know, how they look on the nickel. You can see um, they're etched into the nickel. And basically, oh, there's zero my. error. It's a perfect reproduction. Uh, and um, the letters themselves are the size of a bacillus bacterium, each letter. It's about the size of a bacillus bacterium. 
So holy cow. Yeah. And you can see above, look at 12. We can also do pictures, right? Okay. Going to 12. Oh my God. Look at that. So, uh, and if we wanted to do color, I mean, these are black and white monochrome bitmaps. So to do color, we'd have to basically, um, you know, do color separations. We'd have to create different layers that represent the different colors, but could be done. I'm well, with, with the layering and the right layer, you have Newton's fringes working for well, you. You could certainly do it with the diffractives, but it wouldn't necessarily have, you know, the, the, the perfect color representation that you'd want. You might want to encode the color in a different way. But anyway, you know, there's ways to do that. Now, what is Nana Rosetta? Nana Rosetta, what, um, the company that Bruce started that was producing jewelry using this technology, wearable mementos, basically, jewel, you know, books that you could wear or family histories and, and photos, um, you know, art that you could wear. Um, and he's mainly doing this through his, his company is called Stamper Technologies. Nano Rosetta was his jewelry brand, but Stamper Technologies is, is the company where he's doing this. And there's a lot of other uses for the technology besides archival. Um, you can use it for security. You can use uh, for making anti-counterfeiting technologies. It's actually being used, it's been used for anti-counterfeiting um, for quite some time. Um, it's being used in Microsoft's, uh, all of their DVD products and CD products have a layer that using the technology just to create these diffractives that are extremely hard to count. So would you say if the quartz disc was, you know, stage one in Heinlein's three laws of or three levels of technology that this is stage two? Well, I mean, there, today, yes. I mean, it's possible that at some point in the future, um, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, courts may have the ability to do this, um, maybe even at higher resolution. It's unclear. Mm -hmm. um, but today, um, and probably for the next several decades, um, this, we haven't seen anything that can come close to this. Um, and the and advantage so, is you can go with your tutorial from stupid, simple stuff that even guys without microscopes can see to lead them deeper and deeper and deeper into the chain. Yeah. And, and so now, you know, and there's actually, you know, there's actually, people don't talk about it much, but there's still a lot of microfiche being made. Uh, microfiche, not nanofiche, but mm -hmm. microfiche, which is, you know, film. Remember it well. Because there's still no better way to really back stuff up. I mean, digital backups have lots of risks. For millennials who have no clue what we're talking about, describe what microfiche is and was. Well, microfiche is film um, that... Uh, governments and photographic and film. You have to define what photographic film is. Come on. Photographic film that goes in a thing called a camera, not a phone. <laughs> um, and um, you basically, they, they, they take books or documents and they, they take pictures of each page and they store it on film. The film is, is small, so it's micro scale. The pictures are really little and they, they come on a strip of film and that goes into reels, which then run through a reader, which goes really fast, and you basically can find the page you want by spinning the reel. And it kind of libraries still have these in some cases. You can still find them. Universities mm. still have them. Government agencies have them. See, I um, made you do this because I want to illustrate to the audience how even in a generation we've lost connection to ancient by our standard hmm. storage mechanisms. Although microfiche is not ancient in the sense it's still widely used. It's, it's very widely used. It's just nobody talks about it. But there is other, you know, nanofiche is the next thing after microfiche, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, because microfiche lasts 50 years and then you have to redo it. Because the film will basically, you know, oxidize. So you have to rewrite microfiche. And it also, you know, we can store 
uh, well, about 40,000 pages in the space that micro, well, well, let's be a little bit more specific. Um, in one of our layers, we can store 40,000 pages. Um, you know, the, we can store certainly uh, a lot more pages per uh, square centimeter in our medium than you can with microfiche. So it also is a more efficient use of space. But the key is the medium itself is not going to degrade. Yeah, you never have to rewrite it. Ever, so, ever, yeah. ever, ever, ever. And we've actually designed a reader uh, for this. Special. Well, that's cool. It's about time, Nova. Come on. There's a reader. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, so we have this technology now that, um, by the way, we can also encode digital data into nickel, right? Mm-hmm. So analog layers and digital layers. And so um, if you look at number 11, going um, you're 11, seeing, you're seeing uh, two pictures that have never been published of um, what we have made for Space IL. Um, Describe Space IL. Well, Space IL is um, the Israel, the privately funded uh, Israeli moon landing. Started as a student project. It was part of the uh, Lunar X Prize competition. It was the last entrant. Nobody thought they could do it, but they did. Um, uh, after you know, they started with basically it was a talk. Um, a few million dollars were contributed, and now you know about a hundred million dollars later, um, in ten years. You know, they are due to launch on a SpaceX rocket um, very soon. Um, so, you know, they should be landing on the moon uh, in April. Wow. And inside of it is the Ark. We call it the Billion Year Archive. Um, it's a time capsule that, um, as you can see here, uh, is, uh, it looks like a nickel object. Um, you can see on the top a bunch of circles. Those, each of those circles on the top layer, uh, the top layer contains 1,500 pages. It's a low magnification. So you can view that with you know, 100x power microscope. Nothing special. You can see that you can, with the naked eye, you can see it has pages in it. Um, you know, with a simple magnifier, you can, see the, you can see the pictures and stuff in the pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a couple logos that are holographically you know, done with diffractives. They're beautiful. Um, but this top layer um, is the beginning of what we call the primer. Um, and it provides the information about what this is, the table of contents, you know, what's in it. Uh, we've designed our own, if you will, Rosetta Stone to, you know, a visual diagram of the disks and what's in them and how to understand them. You know, we've, we've kind of created our own Voyager disk, if you will. Hmm. At this level. Um, we'll share this stuff in the future. Um, so this top layer is really that first visual teaser to kind of get you interested and it explains what's in this. But there are actually 25 layers. So I'm a guy in a spacesuit in 50,000 years when the next civilization comes along. And I find this thing on this spacecraft sitting on the moon. And I know it's an archive and I should be careful with it. How? Well, I mean, you look at it. What, what is this thing? What's it doing inside a spacecraft? It looks geometric. It looks designed. It looks... Oh, and you, you, as soon as you look at it, you can see there's pages full of symbols and pictures. Okay. I mean, you can see there's pictures in there. I mean, well, you can easy. see there's a geometric raster. How do we know that they will know its pages? 
Maybe pages well, are an obsolete if you, concept. If you magnify it even slightly, which you would obviously do, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they aren't. The, in this case, the magnification, it looks a lot more like um, picture number 17. I mean, it's a little it's smaller, but you can see that there's pages. You can see there's letters and pictures in the pages with the naked eye. You, you need to magnify them to read them, but you can see that they're there with the naked eye. The next question is, when what language? Because language is... languages, but, but a lot of pictures. In English, we're English as the reference language. Mm-hmm. But then, in the deeper layers of this thing, now, you know, I won't say everything about it now, but like we talked about the staircase idea, um, there is a huge primer and it's visual. And then there's the entire Wikipedia in English. And then there's a vast amount of other things. And it goes on and on. There are Easter eggs within Easter eggs, mm. rabbit holes, rabbit holes. Is there video? There are rabbit holes within the rabbit holes. <laughs> this, See, you, you know, you, go ahead. The labyrinth. So we, I spent years, literally years, curating the data, very carefully and deeply thought through. And so this actually accomplishes what I set out to do. Um, the, there's a very, very amazing primer, which eventually will show um there's you know there are there are 80 what is it uh is it 60 or 80 i'll have to look that up again i think it's a, i think it's actually sixty thousand uh, analog images on in the primer hmm. Sixty thousand pages accessible via microscope deeper the next level of magnification so then you'd need a uh about a 400 to 1,000 X powered microscope, depending on the optics. Mm-hmm. Not much. Still low power, te- low, low technology. And that teaches you everything you need to know to read the digital layers. Wow. Yeah. And the digital layers contain about 100 gigabytes of data. Now, if you've been following our work, you know that back a few years ago, I found something on an Apollo 17 image that looked like basically a robot head lying in Shorty Crater at the Apollo 17 landing site. The famous C-3PO. C-3PO. I originally called it Data's Head because there was a stunning two-parter in Next Generation, which talked about basically a 500-year survival of Data's Head and that kind of thing. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized it really looked to me like C-3PO down to and including the iris camera eyes. I think I sent you an image, a close-up image of that this afternoon. So I've been you know, speculating for years now that maybe the 17 guys saw it, rappelled down the slope of the crater with a rope, because they had ropes with them, picked it up and brought it home. And it's taken decades for NASA to figure out how to talk to it, because it looks like an AI head of a some kind of robot, including a color-coding red stripe on its chin. If you wanted to democratize data throughout a culture and a civilization so that no matter where you looked, you might stumble over their archive, making umpteen copies in AI replicants, you know, robots, whatever, seems to me the way you do it, and each one of them would be a holographic version of a library extending as far back as the programmers could encode stuff. I mean, 
we could see, depending upon the connection of this civilization with others in the galaxy, in this model, maybe videos from the formation of the solar system. Indeed, uh, and, and we also um, thought about this, um, the concept of making a more active, intelligent archive that could teach and interact and, and learn. It, this you know, brings, me, brings to mind you know, Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Um, and, um, and what was the, uh, the, uh, what was the movie after where's, uh, it's, it's late now mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not thinking straight, but, um, the movie, Carl Sagan movie, Contact. Contact. Yeah. And Contact. Yeah. Um, and in Contact, you know, the way that we're contacted is through virtual reality effectively. Yep. Um, and you know, I, I've often thought maybe if, if we were going to get contacted by an advanced civilization, the best way to do it would be through the internet. Um, and in any case, we, we thought about, um, avatars and intelligent agents and VR and, and creating software. And, and again, I think down the road, we will try to do it. See, the one thing I'm thinking of in terms of this recognition, how do space explorers 50,000 years from now, wandering around the moon, realize there's an archive in this little spaceship that's sitting there? Well, they'd have to find the spaceship. They'd have to dissect it and then they'd find that. Yeah. But wouldn't it be easier if you put it in a casing that said humanoid, said intelligence, said yeah, of course, like like, like 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 a head, like C three PO, like yeah, uh, it would, it would the crystal great. skulls, you know? Yeah. Actually, it would be great. You'd have to, of course, you'd have to make a computer that could survive in the you know the cosmic the space environment. No, 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 no. I'm no, I'm I'm just talking physical um, casing, a physical yeah, statue. You know, a head says to any humans intelligence. That's why the crystal skulls of well, I mean, the, the challenge we had was in this case, you know, this object you're looking at weighs 100 grams. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's pretty hard to make a, a humanoid head that weighs 100 grams that has all, all this data in it. Well, it doesn't have to be the size of a human head. All it has be to be is an an analog representative. We had a lot of constraints to fit this thing. Yeah, you know, I'm just but... saying for future reference. If people get on board and it's not just a piggyback thing, it's part of their mission. Yeah. Oh, no, believe me. I've thought about it. I've thought about it. You know, when you're piggybacking onto other people's satellites and landers, <laughs> um, you're generally using unused wasted space. Hey, think of me and Eric and Sagan trying to get NASA to think on a billion-year time frame. Yeah, but we do have, I will say, we have some other missions um, we haven't announced yet um, where we will have the ability to deliver other things. Okay. Uh, and those things are along the lines of what you're talking about. Uh, and so, you know, really uh, strong statement. This is an object created by an intelligent civilization. You know, think of, you know, Arthur C. Clarke in 2001, for example. Mm. Um, or the Sentinel, the original inspiration, right? Yeah. By the way, oh, perfect segue. Perfect, perfect. Who created your logo? Because it looks to me like Arthur Clarke's Sentinel. That's interesting. I, I came up with the idea because of the pyramids, and I felt it was a universal symbol that we all understood. Um, and, you know, it also kind of points up and it has the, the dark and the light. You know, there's a lot of just beautiful things. It's very simple. It's also kind of classical, and I'm, I feel that, you know, in many ways there's sort of this Parthenon's kind of quality to what we're doing, and uh, so we went with a very simple, austere, classical, you know, hmm. uh, ancient symbol. 
See, to any really, really advanced civilization that says in 2D hyperdimensional physics, because pyramids are machines, they're actual interactive geometrically with the ether. So, yeah, I mean, if, if, if that's the case, um, then this might communicate a message to them that, you know, we know what those things are. Um, but, you know, the technology that this is made with is incredibly advanced. I mean, if they actually look at it with, you know, presumably if they're very advanced, they'd be looking at it with an electron microscope and they'd see that it's very advanced to make this. Um, so in any case, you know, we, we'll say a lot more about this, um, you know, in months to come. Okay. As we get closer to the mission. Yeah. Like once we launch and, you know, and when we land, can you um, talk about where they're landing? Yeah, that's published on, on their site. Um, and it's called Mare Serenitas, uh, which is the sea. Mare Serenitatis. Tatis, sorry. Tatis, yes. yes. The Sea of Serenity, right? Yep. Um, and which is, I think, near the Apollo, was it 17? No, 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 no. Oh, far away. Far, far away. Sorry, which one was it? Apollo. Well, I think from the map I saw, you're going to be landing so far north that there's no, you're going to be a thousand miles from any of the Apollo equatorial landing sites and a good thousand miles from Chang 3, about the same latitude. Well, here, but, okay, so Luna 21 and Apollo 17 landed near the eastern border of Mare Serenitatis. Yeah, but down by Crissia. The Monte Tor- Montes Taurus range. Yeah, but they're down toward the south. This is up toward the north, I think. That's true. That's true. Yeah, so it's a so, long ways. It's never been, it's, it's a place a you've thing. never. It's a large feature. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, is, do we know why the, the Israelis are landing there? Yeah. There, there is um, um, a, an anomaly in the conductivity um, of the surface of the moon there. And so they, they, they see um, it's less electrically conductive. And they're going to study – there's a magnetometer on board, and they're going to study that. Um, they, you know, the, the thought is that uh, you know, for some, it's thicker there for some reason, um, but they're going to study that anomaly. Hmm, an anomaly. I like anomalies. That's probably your favorite word. (laughs) If you were wanting to make a marker for land here because there's something to find, wouldn't you want to create an anomaly? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, one of the nice things is, I mean, it's a very large anomaly, but it is an anomaly. If you did a magnetic, you know, electromagnetic study of the moon, you know, and in fact, there's pictures of it. um, You can go and look at the Wikipedia page from Ari Serenitatis, and you will see um, the gravity there's a gravity anomaly. Actually, it's heavier there, which is, I guess, interesting. Um, there's more stronger gravity in this area. By the way, um, I, w- I want to remind our listeners, you did not fall asleep. We're not in an alternate dimension. I did blow past the break at the bottom of the hour. Remember, those are soft breaks. This is just too incredibly entrancing. Um, no, but you, you're, you're spellbinding because of what you're doing is so archetypal. Well, and that's why we call it the Ark Mission. Yeah, that was my next question. How did the ark, because there's a whole Egyptian derivative of, yeah. of arcs and arches, how did you wind up with this, this name? Well, it's a play on words, right? I mean, there is arch. There's also archive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, of course, arc with a K and arc with a C. So, you know, I was playing around with words and it, you know, we, it, was a, it was short for archive, but pronounced arc. Um, but some people call it arch and I'm fine with that because I like arches. Um, and it's also, you know, you can think of the arc of our civilization and all kinds of nice. References. Are you familiar with the Egyptian translation, which is the one uh, I no, love the I'm best? I'm not. I'm not. Okay. The arc Ur 
is the description in Egyptian of the Sphinx. Hmm. And the translation is the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's perfect. It is. It is perfect. Um, yeah. I mean, we are, we are speaking at a point in the very beginning of what we're doing still. Um, but if we, if we manage in, in my lifetime and maybe in many lifetimes of other people who follow and keep going with what we're doing to, to really propagate a lot of these and to continue to send slices of, of new knowledge and more knowledge and, into more places. Uh, I think we can guarantee that our civilization and all the other civilizations that we know of that we are recording will never be lost. And this is the first time in human history that that guarantee can be made. It's a, a statistical, it's a probabilistic argument. If we put enough of them out there in enough places, we know they won't be lost. Mm. And so this is the first time ever that we can make that guarantee as long as we keep doing what we're doing. We've had some emails come in. Uh, nobody wants to get on the phone because they don't want to interrupt what you're talking about. But there's some interesting emails. Let me read one of these. Um, this is from Rod. He says, Richard, whatever came of the eerie music revelation the Apollo astronauts made when their capsule orbited the far side of the moon, according to the NASA transcripts. Have you ever heard of that, Nova? Well, I've, I've, I've read a lot of interesting stuff about the NASA transcripts, and, and there's a lot of stuff which you know, is sort of controversial and isn't clear if, if, you know, whether or not it's, it's official or not. There's also a lot of intercepted radio communication, so I don't know about the eerie music. But I'd love to hear some eerie music. I've actually heard it. And at the time, about 10 years ago, NASA released the transcripts from the recorders in the lunar module. When the the crew separated, you know, lunar module from command module, the two astronauts were going to go down to the surface. They had onboard flight recorders, but they were not broadcasting over the air-to-ground loop. So they were basically on, on tape recorders, all right? And they would bring those back. You know, they would transfer them back to the command module when they left the moon. They brought the recorders back. They then waited, I don't know how many, like 10, 20 years before they declassified those recordings. Yeah, why were they classified? Right? I don't know. The question. Yeah. I don't know. And then they made transcripts of those recordings. And on those transcripts, I've seen, I haven't heard the recordings, but I've seen allusions. I think it was Apollo 10. They were on the far side of the moon and they heard something that they described as like choral music and, you know, Houston said, oh, it's just, you know, um, uh, you know, what, what is it, beat frequencies or some kind of, you know, multiple, heterodyning het- is the term in the, in the communications loops, but it sure sounded ethereal and very mysterious. Sort of like a theremin kind of like? Kind of like, uh, yeah, Forbidden Planet. Mm-hmm. So that's one of those little mysteries out there. So I'm sorry, Rod, um, don't have an answer, but uh, we've got the guy who, if he's interested, he's going to go after the Europeans on 67P. <laughs> he may well, actually. Well, you know, I, my feeling is that if you know, we're just going to make these things, we're going to make archives and arcs and beacons. We're going to go and make this stuff, and we're going to go and put them in the places where, you know, someone else who was trying to do it would would logically put them, and so. If there is anything else that's already there, you know, we'll be in position to hopefully find it. See, that brings up the incredible irony. The Israelis are landing in this place in Mari Serenitatis because it's got some kind of magnetic anomaly, right? 
Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be bizarre if it's basically the Ouroboros? They're going to a place where an ancient culture left an anomaly, so they would go and find an archive that they're actually bringing to the ark. I mean, the, well, that would the be very in, infinite regressive mirror. Yeah. yeah, possibly, or maybe where where the ancient culture putting it there. Meaning, are we yeah. talking time loops now? Well, I mean, who knows? Who knows? Oh, no, that we don't it. know the structure of time. That gets into the conversation I had with Randy last night. I said we don't know the structure of time and what I just described and what you just alluded to. In fact, could we could be looking at ourselves, the infinite regressive mirror. Yeah, who wow. knows? I mean, it, it could be, you know, and quantum mechanics is not sure if there were parallel worlds, right? We don't know. We don't know. It, it, we don't know if by doing this now we're influencing the past. It's po- things are strange. We know that. Um, and so – the reverberations of doing this, you know, maybe more profound uh, than we can imagine. Hmm. I've got another note. This is from Rocky. I think they're in Colorado. He says, hey, the red moon here is visible. This must have been an hour or two ago. I swear it is bouncing around. Four exclamation points. I'm in Blackhawk, Colorado, or on top of a mountain before you head up down to the Blackhawk. The stars are motionless, but the damn moon is bouncing around. Yeah, I saw that too, and I, uh, I was watching some clouds going past the moon, and and I, I was uh, suddenly the moon started bouncing around, and I realized that was my eyes moving. Uh, sort of, he like, says, "What could make this happen? Even appeared to happen." Kay must be his wife. Wants to know. I'll be listening. Yeah, I've seen this with stars, but I've never seen it with something as big as the moon or the sun. Well, it bounced, and it, it actually took me by surprise. I went, "Whoa!" And then I realized, no, what was happening is I was watching the moon so intently uh-huh. that uh, then my eyes, I think, I moved a little bit. And my eyes moved just because they were tracking the moon. But, it may, but the illusion was that the moon had moved. It's very interesting. Hmm. Yeah, it bounced around quite a bit. I don't know what else could explain it. I'm trying to think. We've got a few minutes left here. I'm, I'm amazed we have time left because this is such a deep subject, unintended. What did, what did, what did we not cover? Well, um, DNA. And so um, we're also working on another technology, um, which comes from another line of thought. Um, again, stemming, you know, I, what, in 2005, I think I blogged about this. Um, and the question was, you know, is, I wrote, is, is there a message in our DNA? Because I was, you know, I was thinking about all of this and I thought, well, you know, if there if I was going to make an archive, ultimately, one way to, to encode it and make sure it was handed down was to put it into DNA. And then, you know, that way you'd have every, seven billion copies right now. Yeah, and everybody would be kind of a living library and pass it down through their lineage. Um, so, of course, as soon as I thought of that, I said, well, wait, maybe there is already a message there then, mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a logical place to put it, right? Well, and from the Genome right. Project, we know there's DNA that works, and then they have this thing they've called junk DNA, which I always thought was a stupid way to. Describe something you don't have a clue as to why it's there. Yeah. The unexplored DNA. Yeah. Um, well, the interesting thing, I mean, the one difference is that, that the so-called junk DNA, um, as far as we know, doesn't code for anything. Um, but as more importantly, right. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is that, well, I'll say this. We know that I originally thought the junk DNA would be the place to look. And, uh, and my question was, well, you know, hopefully 
somebody at the NSA has, you know, in their, in their, in their free time. Uh, I don't know if they have free time, but you know, <laughs> if they have any free time, um, you know, reading all those emails. Hey, they have free time. time to eavesdrop on us. So of course oh, they have free reading time. Emails, you know, it takes a lot of time, you know, but, um, I mean, imagine we, keeping up with my own emails hard, but keeping up with billions of emails. Ah, oh, that's where you need an, e- an AI. Yeah, a real anyway, AI. Um, maybe somebody in their free time project, you know, did a cryptographic analysis. So I started looking around, um, and turns out that there ha- there was a, there have been a few references to some papers where there was an analysis, not classified, um, where they did find I think it was like a zip analysis, or they found patterns in in the junk DNA that. Or indicative of language. Language meaning, you know, some some grammar and syntax of some sort. But of course, DNA is a language, it's a chemical language. So, right. Um, See, the first question I would have would be if you take, you know, mother and daughter or father and son, mm-hmm. and you compare DNA, will the junk DNA replicate? In which case, it's a replicatable. Well, and here, and yes, good question. So I eventually. Ask that same question, and the answer is uh, it will a little bit, but it, over time it doesn't really get preserved. There'll always be junk DNA, but the, it doesn't get preserved. In. And the reason is, um, but is there a core that does? Yeah, so natural selection co- basically selects for things that have a survival advantage or reproductive advantage. And so the parts of the DNA that code for things that you need to survive will, you know, be maintained and error corrected. Uh, and the thing parts that don't will will you know randomly mutate and change and gradually they'll they'll degrade. So if junk DNA doesn't code for anything that has a selected advantage, then it's not going to be passed down after a certain period of time. It will degrade. A message in junk DNA won't last if junk DNA doesn't code for anything that has a selected Unless advantage. Unless they're not sure yet if it does or it doesn't. Oh. I mean, there's certainly some evidence that it doesn't, but there's also evidence that, you know, bit by bit, there's, there's been some studies and they have found that, you know, maybe there's more going on, at least in some of it, than we thought. We just don't know what it's for yet. Um, but, but, but along those lines, I started thinking about this and, and realized, well, I mean, okay, fine. So why don't we somehow encode knowledge into DNA and tie it to something that actually does matter to survival? And so we'd want to put that somehow we tie it to something like the immune system, you know, or the, or, or, uh, you know, the, the sexual functions, you know, things that are really critical, um, to reproduction and survival. Um, so if we were going to look for a message in DNA, we might want to look, you know, somehow around those parts of the genome, because those are the most important things in the genome. And so they, you know, that would be where you might want to put your signature or whatever it is you want to, want to put. And anyway, is anybody looking? I don't. Uh, well, actually, yes. In fact, um, I do think there is someone looking. I just heard about that recently. Um, we'll see what they find. Um, I went, I tried years about, well, around 2005. I made a bunch of phone calls and nobody had, nobody that I, I contacted the right people and nobody had looked at the time. Um, but I did see that one paper, which is interesting. Um, they were looking at the junk DNA. Um, anyway, fast forward. I mean, you have to go back to, to first principles. If it's, if it's just random stuff, what the hell is it doing there? 
And if it's not random stuff, then it must have a purpose. And what yeah. other purpose would there be but to encode through time messages connected to consciousness and human beings? Well, maybe. I mean, there's a whole possibility. There's a whole. There's a possibility that that memories are encoded in RNA. There's a famous sea slug experiment where they ground. They train sea slugs. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. to take you know to go in the direction of light. Then they ground up their brains and fed them to untrained sea slugs. And they put them back in the maze, and lo and behold, the untrained sea slugs suddenly knew how to knew to go to the light because that's where the food was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, the the only explanation was that somehow the RNA or something in the you know in the ground up brains encoded memories. And there's other experiments that have looked at this. Um, so we don't really know yet how memory and knowledge is encoded, and you know where and how. Um, you know, we, we could be completely wrong about what the brain is doing. We just really don't understand the brain very well. We understand the high level. Um, but, you know, Kurzweil thinks, you know, we're going to hit the singularity in a few decades because he believes that computation is happening at the neuronal level. But there's a whole group of people that believe consciousness is happening at the microtubule level, at the quantum level. Roger Penrose and and, you know, if, if, in fact, computation of the brain is quantum and the brain is a quantum computer, it's using entanglement and all kinds of things, then, you know, it might be doing vastly more Hey, Nova, we've run out of runway. We'll have to do this again. What an extraordinarily interesting evening. I really want to thank you for uh, trepidations aside, coming on the other side of midnight and spitballing some astonishing stuff. And what a heck of a story about myself. Good luck. My guest this morning, Nova Spivak, we'll be back next weekend, same time, same bad channel. Remember, until then, third star on the left, straight on tomorrow. Night, everyone.